0: As you know, last, last year was um, the 100th anniversary. So this, this year is the um, 101st um, anniversary for the um, 19th Amendment um, and the woman's right to vote. So uh, we're really pleased that AIWA lalv is again sponsoring a program to um, commemorate this. And we have got a great lineup for you today. Uh, combination of uh, speakers and panels. And so we're so happy that you can can join us. Um, our theme actually is um, a little bit aviation theme, because in addition to our uh, keynote speaker, who's going to talk on from passengers to pilots, um, we also have several of our um, our panelists that are also pilots as well, too. So um, so it's very exciting um, that what we have in terms of the distinguished panelists and speakers that we have today. So I'd like to first introduce our uh, keynote speaker, who, as I said, her theme is from passengers to pilots. Um, it's Ms. Leslie Schakowski and. Leslie has a very interesting job. She is a docent up at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, and I know I have been up there in person. For those of you who have been up there, you know what a thrill it is to see that museum. Um, You know, one of the stellar examples in terms of um, flight up there, in terms of what they have and their artifacts, and Leslie serves as a docent up there. She has a very distinguished background in terms of um library science and archiving and history and so is a really perfect um speaker for this topic that has a historical theme to it um, her bachelor's is in drama theory she has an ms in library science so um, certified librarian and also a master's in liberal um, studies so very interested in history she had a concentration in 19th century american history and literature and has worked in a variety of positions in library and archives, um, and now is serving as a docent at the Museum of Flight in in Seattle. And she also authors publications and presents quite often on library and archival services, and also on this topic of from uh, passengers to pilots, which she has done um, a lot of research on. So I'm going to turn it over to our keynote speaker, Leslie. Um, so over to you. Thanks. And um, she's a pilot. She is a pilot as well. So you know I talked about the theme that we have for this whole program. We have several panelists that actually are our pilots, what I think is way cool, so that kind of fits in with the theme that um, Leslie talked about. So as I said, Jennifer's an attorney. She's a partner and co-chair of Tressler's Transportation uh, Practice Group. So um, welcome, Jennifer. And we checked your comm check earlier. So I think you are are good. Yes, there's Jennifer. Um, Then uh, another pilot, we have Dr. Anita Sengupta. Um, She is the CEO and founder of Hydroplane uh, Limited. She also is from my alma mater, um, USC. She received her MS and PhD in aerospace engineering from USC. And she's a research associate professor there uh, Formally she worked at uh, NASA and I understand this morning she was actually uh, continuing her work on getting her commercial uh, pilot's license so that's very she's currently an instrument rated pilot so welcome Anita do you want to check your comm uh, for us.
1: Yes, thank you for having me good morning everyone.
0: Yeah, very good welcome. And then uh, we have Dr. Swati Sasena. She is an AIAA lifetime senior member. So uh, uh, made the investment to be a lifetime member um, and is currently a senior member of the society. She serves as a technical and project uh, manager from Ansys Incorporated. And um, she also has uh, her PhD degree in aerospace engineering from, from Penn State. So welcome, Swati,
2: do you want to check your
0: com? Yes,
2: sure, thank you, thank you everyone. Thanks for having me, glad to be here.
0: All right, so those are our panelists. And then in addition, I mentioned that, um, Leslie will also be be joining us. So what I've asked the um, panelists to do is for each of them to, To start with, uh, I've given everyone uh, five minutes uh, of the other, the five remaining panelists that have have joined us to to give some input of something related to their um, career and profession. So it could be, um, you know, a personal story, could something that they feel has been important in their career. But I've kind of asked each of them as uh, first to kind of provide some of that context as we get into talking about careers. And so... um, we can go ahead and do that uh do that now and um why don't we start then with um
3: uh, claudine all right so contrary so i um was interested in aviation at a very young age Um, i wanted to be an astronaut Um, so i went to high school for aerospace engineering in New York, we have Brooklyn Tech. We have Brooklyn Tech High School, and they have aerospace engineering as a major. Um, and I think it served me well. Um, I then went on to college to major in aerospace and mechanical engineering, and um, my job. It was the end of the cold war ever when I entered the field. So the jobs did come in um, in mechanical engineering as my professors told me. And that's part of the reason I got a mechanical engineering degree as a backup for my aerospace. Um, but I quickly was able to get um, leave the automotive industry and go into um, aerospace first working at Raytheon. Um, Missile systems in Tucson, and then um, Raytheon Aircraft, which um, was was formerly known as Beechcraft. Um, so I really appreciate all of the um, the photos of the Beechcraft and the stories about uh, mob what they call Mob Beach, et cetera. So um, from there, I went over to Sikorsky and work, which was purchased by Lockheed Martin. Um, And I am currently a principal systems engineer at Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I'm also the AIAA Diversity and Working Group Chair.
0: Thank you, Claire. Um, Next, uh, I mean, uh,
4: Claudine, next, uh, Claire, over to you. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Um, let's see, I'm probably the oldest person here. <laughs> so I graduated from college in 1979. Um, even majoring in engineering was maybe a little random. I started college as a math and Russian major, but then I decided I wanted, quote unquote, a real career. I didn't want to just teach, just which I was what I thought would happen if I just did math and Russian. Um, so Hiring was good when I graduated, the the companies were being pressured to hire women. So, um, so, you know, it's funny what there's a manager at Hughes, which was later bought by Boeing who went out to, um, I, I was probably pretty close to the top woman because I was really almost the only woman. So uh, but I wasn't necessarily at the top of my class. I, getting through college and engineering at the time it was challenging. Being, the, you know, one of the only women, not a great support network. I, all of my studying I did on my own. Um, study groups weren't a thing. So it was, it was a challenge. But what was good is that Hughes was hiring. I hired into the propulsion department. Um, frankly, I hated propulsion. Um, I wanted to know everything about everything and propulsion was not it. So um, I ended up after about a year transferring to the system test department and I call it, it was a great opportunity for me because as a female, I did not have a whole lot of hands-on time. So I call it my cable dragging days and uh, uh, cables to wire up a spacecraft or to hook a spacecraft up to power or, you know, I mean, they're bigger than large garden hoses and heavy. So um, anyway, I got a ton of experience in testing. I learned how to test every subsystem. I spent a year off-site in Canada, which was um, a huge learning experience for me because there I felt like I was representing the company. So I had to study a lot. I had to do, you know, I had to. If things didn't get done by the small team in Canada, it didn't get done. So there wasn't the support network that a big, you know, company back in LA has. Um, so then I came back from Canada. By that time I was married and was on the verge of having a son. So um, I decided system tests 24 was seven wasn't the best thing. So I transferred to systems engineering and fortunately they were hiring and it really felt like going home. It was like a small program office. It was a support network. I had mentors, Every every person on the systems engineering team because I was probably one of the youngest, became a mentor and really gave me the opportunity to learn, to strengthen what I learned with, in my cable dragging days to, to understand more about systems and end-to-end how systems work and shuttle integration and writing procedures astronauts executed. And so all that was fun. And over time, I moved into more senior positions and eventually became a program editor for a relatively recurring, so a pretty simple spacecraft. and But I was uh, it was that after 14 years, so I was pretty young as a program manager, but it was a great starter program. And then after I did, ran the program for several years, I was asked to join line management. So I started to run large organizations, um, first as a deputy and then as a business unit leader. And then um, eventually I moved back to program management, but of much more bigger, more complicated programs. And eventually I was promoted to vice president. So my main message is that careers are not linear. What I just described sounds super linear, like you move from one job to the next and more responsibility and everything's wonderful. But I had some major setbacks of, you know, not necessarily being fired, but really knowing that it was time to go do something different and then having to, um, to really reconsider my career path and my values and what was important. And so I, again, my message to some level is that, you know, if if what your drive is, is to make it a senior person, it takes a ton of perseverance. It takes fighting through the setbacks and coming to work every day with a positive attitude, whether you've had a setback or not and not having a chip on your shoulder. I know many women who kind of had a chip on their shoulder and they, they almost then became disenfranchised with management because their attitude was, was almost that of a victim. So I'm a huge fan of Sheryl Sandberg and the Lean In, her Lean In book, and there's a Lean In website and it's people telling stories. But what that to me is about is showing up, being present, sitting at the table, not sitting around the edge of the room, trying hard when things go bad, have a positive attitude and keep on on trying. And definitely find mentors, sponsors, people who can help because the way that you get ahead is through the network. It's not necessarily through quote-unquote, the standard HR system. So it's really good to have people you can talk to and and who can help you. So fight on. Back to you, Marilee.
0: Thank you, Claire. Lots of great context there. Um, So next we'll go to to Jennifer, and I think Jennifer is a really good example of how you can be interested in uh, aerospace and aviation and then pick a different career than uh, Say engineering. So, Jennifer, over to you for an opening statement.
5: So, um, my name is uh, Jennifer Perigueux, um And, you know, I, I was, you know, a bit of the age, you know, my grandparents uh, were, went through World War II. So, my grandfather was a power uh, pilot. Also, um, and, but he flew a seaplane. And uh, so, I think growing up, and he was in aviation insurance his entire life. Uh, almost from the time um, uh, he, he, the war ended, he went to USC, and then um, he went into insurance. And so growing up, my entire, and half the family was also in aviation insurance, and my grandparents <laughs> on my other side, one worked for Hughes and one worked for um, uh, McDonald Douglas. So every dinner conversation and aviation has always kind of captured the imagination. It's just one of those things that, you know, once you get sucked in, you're, you're sucked in for life. Um, so, you know, at a young age, I wanted to be a pilot, but my dad had issues with small airplanes. Uh, so he was so when I was about 15 or 16, I kept pushed to take flying lessons and my dad's like, absolutely not. And, um, so anyway, uh, but I never lost my love for aviation so I went to uh, law school became an aviation attorney. Because um, what I like to do is what we do a lot of is investigation into, you know, the aircraft accidents. fact, um, yesterday I spent the day at Van Nuys Airport, we were going through wreckage of a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And it sounds a little depressing, but it's just fascinating. Why do these things happen? What, what went wrong in the process? And um, and, you know, the, and so finally, about six years, seven, seven years ago, I actually finally um, went and got my pilot's license. And, you know, I think one of the things that I learned from my grandfather is his business associates in aviation were also his friends. So, you know, these are the people that we had um, that we socialized with. These are the people that um, and aviation people and aerospace people, there really aren't any greater people to spend time with. <laughs> so, you know, it's it just always been, um, it's it just always been a, kind of this goal of my mind. If I can do something I love, be in an industry that I love and be around people that I like to be around, then it's not going to seem like work. Then it's going to seem like this is just, and everybody talks about work life balance and it's hard if you have uh, I'm just going to take a good employment law. There's nothing really social about that, <laughs> you know, it, It's just like you know, and everything's very segregated. But you know, in you know my world, I'm going to a 99s conference, which is the Women's Pilot Organization, in a couple of weeks. I have some clients there, and but most of it will just be fun. And then in October, I'll go to the International Aviation Women's Association. And again, there's a lot of overlap between my personal and business life, which just makes it easier because, you know, we can go and have some fun, but we can also get some business done. And, you know, at the end of the day, then we can talk about planes over a couple of drinks. <laughs> so I think for me, it was just, um, one, there's a love of aviation. Two, a love for aviation people. And, you know, three, getting it all to work together. And I think that's how I ended up in the career
6: I'm in, and um, I, I never looked back. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah,
0: that's, that's certainly true. I can definitely resonate with that idea of um, that if you make your colleagues and uh, versus professional organizations are that they're also not just your colleagues but your friends then it really helps with the work-life balance because you just love being with them but it's also related to what you do so I can right. definitely um uh, you know uh, link with that idea um okay so next we have um Dr. Anita Sengupta so Anita over to you
1: Thank you, and I've really enjoyed listening to everyone's journey so far. Uh, so my journey, I think, you know, it largely did start off with aerospace and aviation since I was a small child. Um, I was born in the UK, uh, moved to the US when I was small. So every summer we would fly back and forth on um, a 747 uh, between New York and um initially, Shannon Airport in Ireland, because it was too far to be able to make it all the way to London, and eventually over to London. And I remember when I was a little kid, my dad, who was a PhD mechanical engineer taught me about aerodynamic lifts. And I thought a plane taking off was like magic. And he told me sort of what was actually going on behind it. Um, I'm also an enormous science fiction fan. I used to watch Star Trek with my dad when I was a little kid. So I kind of always knew I wanted to be involved in the space program. I went and got all of my degrees, BS, MS, PhD in aerospace engineering. And Ironically, I was going to go um, full on from my undergraduate to do my PhD at USC, but Boeing came to interview at my school and um, I'm like, okay, I'll interview with them, see what it's like. And they told me, oh, if you come to work for us, we'll pay for your graduate school and we'll pay for you to get your pilot's license. I was like, oh, that sounds like a great deal. So I decided to go to school part-time for my master's degree, work full-time for Boeing and started working on my private pilot's license as part of their program. So they paid for once you get your solo and they paid for you once you get your license. Um, and I eventually finished my PhD. I went over to JPL, um, NASA JPL and uh, focused for five years on my PhD work, which is in ion propulsion and then shifted over to something completely different, which was entry, descent, and landing systems for Mars, working on aerodynamic accelerators. So it's kind of like the opposite of being aerodynamically efficient, which an airplane should be, and being aerodynamically inefficient to produce drag. Um, I then became a manager for five years, working on the development of a payload for the International Space Station. And after about 16 years working for NASA, I got recruited to work in the green transportation space as an executive at Virgin Hyperloop. So this was my first foray into something with an earth-based application as opposed to a space or interplanetary application. And that really got me interested in being an entrepreneur. It got me interested in thinking about what I could do as an engineer and as a leader to address um, new technology to support climate change. And then I went into the electric aviation space. I was a co-founder for an eVTOL company, for two years where I learned all about putting batteries in airplanes and how a bit limiting that is. And then I decided to start a new company, my own company, which I'm the founder of, uh, which is putting hydrogen fuel cells into aircraft to really facilitate having um, emission-free air travel. And during the pandemic, I wanted to do something to help um, sort of my local community. And so I started to volunteer at uh, the food bank um, in LA um, at different sites in um, sort of the San Fernando Valley. And I saw these people wearing this shirt there. I'm like, oh, what's that? And they're like, we're the civil. Air Patrol. I'm like, what's the Civil Air Patrol? I've never heard that before. And so then I joined the Civil Air Patrol. I've been a member for just not even a year yet, and I'm now a captain of the Civil Air Patrol. You're able to advance more quickly if you have advanced degrees and a professor. I'm a professor at USC as well, and I'm training to be a search and rescue pilot now. I finished my mission scanner rating, my mission observer rating, and I have to say it's absolutely exhilarating to be part of an operational scenario using your skills as an engineer, using your skills as a pilot, using your skills as a leader to kind of help people here at home. And so aviation definitely is my life now, whether it is my company or whether it's what I teach in my university role or what I do in my free time as a captain in the Civil Air Patrol. So I absolutely love aviation and um, sort of the sky is not the limit when it comes to the job opportunities that are out there right now. So this is the time to get into it. Thanks. Great. Yeah, that's a amazing
0: um, background in, in aviation. So, uh, Anita, just amazing. Um, next, we have Dr. Swati Sasena. Uh Over to
2: you, Swati. All right, thank you, Marley. Um, really, you know, g- glad to hear all these stories and uh, such great achievements of you all. Um, so, growing up, you know, I got interested in aerospace vehicles just. You know different kind of vehicles that are out there, got interested in how they design, how they're designed, how they uh, perform, uh, you know, how, the, how they can fly, and all that, and the aerodynamic drag, what's lift, what's drag, and all those things I got familiar with uh, when I was growing up. And uh, uh, when I was a child, I also. Was uh, very interested in astronomy, and at some point of time, I thought we, you know, aerospace and astronomy are very related and are similar. Uh, you know, it's, it's true to an extent, but but uh, you know, they are they're totally uh, there's like a different walls as well. So um, I uh, so after I grew up uh, after my you know high school, I got a, a chance to study aerospace engineering at. Uh, IIT Kanpur, Indian Institute of Technology Kanpur, which is um, a premier engineering institution in India. So I was fortunate enough to get admitted there. And uh, it's it's the only institution in India with the aerospace engineering degree, which has uh, its own airstrip. And also, uh, ha- we have used to have a very active gliding club, uh, few Cessnas, few Piper aircraft. So that really opened up the world for me. I got a chance to uh, fly those aircrafts, uh, you know, s- s- sit sit next to the pilot in the in the cockpit and and see how the controls work and all of that. So that was a really really good experience. After finishing my bachelor's, I came to the U.S. for my graduate studies, and uh, uh, I did that from Penn State, both my master's and PhD. And uh, during my graduate studies, I got a chance to work on projects with uh, uh, companies like Boeing and Pratt & Whitney, which was very, very uh, good to um, good good exposure I got with, you know, working on some of the challenging problems they were looking at. So my area of research was aeroacoustics. So I was uh, developing uh, models and uh, um, methods to um, calculate uh, the noise generated from a, a jet engine, a fighter aircraft and so on. It was very interesting to see what kind of uh, what's, what's the, the huge range you know you see in terms of uh, the, the just the acoustic signature of these aircrafts and what kind of methods are employed to uh, make them uh, to reduce the noise. So that was a very good uh, experience working, on, working with Boeing and Pratt and Whitney during my PhD. And uh, I was also fortunate enough to be awarded the Amelia Earhart fellowship that the Zonta uh, International uh, gives every year for uh, women pursuing higher studies in aerospace engineering. I believe they give out around 35 such fellowships every year. So that was a very uh, big motivation, big, uh, you know, motivation and uh, uh, something that I'm, I am was, was really fortunate enough to get at that point of time, that was a big, uh, big motivation. So after finishing my PhD from Penn State, I got recruited by uh, GE Global Research Center in upstate New York. Uh, they have a huge research uh, facility there And uh, as uh, uh, most of you might be familiar with GE, they make uh, gas turbine engines for both aviation and land-based power uh, generation applications. So I got a chance to work on some really, really cool technology at the research center on their uh, some of their engines, both aviation and land-based power, mostly uh, GENX, GE9X, and LEAP engines on the, on the aviation side. Um, uh, some very interesting problems like engine icing uh, sand ingestion in engines as as they operate in these environments where you have a lot of dust and uh, particulates in the in the atmosphere, how that affects the engine performance. So that uh, you know that that was really uh, you know good good experience there. So after working there for five years, almost five years, little over five years, I moved to the West Coast, so um, in the Bay Area, and then I joined ANSYS where I'm currently working at. And uh, it's, a, it's a world leader in engineering simulation and uh, modeling uh, software. So I'm really intrigued by the breadth of uh, tools they have, across different physics. And one of the most important industry that vertical that we work with at ANSYS is FAND, Federal Aerospace and Defense. And I'm currently working with uh, uh, some of our um, large uh, uh, customers in this domain, uh, OEMs, government, and, uh, uh, and government as well from the, on the federal side with uh, some of the uh, some of the answers products and uh, for example one of the projects that i'm you know really i was really interested in uh, it was a really good experience again to work on was uh, we were looking at new methods to disinfect aircraft cabins um, last year when after covid had hit uh, to clean them more efficiently so uh, things like using uv light for cleaning uh, for disinfecting aircraft cabins more quickly and more efficiently looking at different kind of sprays and all of that so that's that's you know recently that's what i have been working on so really great experience so far and uh, uh, at, at AIA as well, I've been pretty active at the uh, local chapter here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm currently the honors and awards director here, so I try to get involved, remain involved in some of the STEM related activities we have at uh, both high school level and also at uh, the undergraduate level here uh, in, at the universities and schools.
0: Thank you, Swati, and such a global perspective too, from starting in uh, in India with your um, career journey. Um, and then uh, I'd like to give Leslie a bit of time as well too. I am particularly interested because of your career journey, because you started doing library science at um, you know after you graduated at Grinnell College, University of Minnesota, and University of Pittsburgh. So, but I was kind of in- because you must have done a variety of things. What got you most interested in uh, kind of aviation and then led to now where you've um, uh, been doing that and also serving as a docent? So how did that happen?
6: Leslie, are you on mute? Yes, I just ended okay, Sorry. Good, good, um, thanks. Um, interesting question. The, reason I got involved was because after I retired, uh, we moved to the Seattle area and I wanted to find things to do and volunteering in an archive seemed like a really great thing. And I was able to hook up with the people from the Museum of Flight. So it wasn't the subject matter so much in the beginning as it was just having an opportunity to volunteer in an organization um, where I could do uh, some work that I would be familiar with. Soon the opportunity came to get involved as a docent and be trained as a docent, which is not quite as much as getting an advanced degree, but um, they put us through a a long uh, series of classes to become a docent in a variety of reasons um, and types of information. So it wasn't until I started doing that, that I developed an interest in aviation and what has really made it something that I've become fascinated by is the links between aviation and history. And as I've thought about it over the years, being, um, I I think I am older, Claire, than um, other people in this group, um, I recognize that in some ways you can tell the history of the 20th century through aviation. And I think the same thing will be true for the early part of the 21st century because so much of what has happened has either come about because of advances in aviation or various um, relationships like that. And I just find that connection really important. And then for me, my only real connection with aviation is as a passenger, and I've not flown quite as often back and forth of uh, the pond um, to the UK as, as um, was it Anita did? Um, But um, I love to fly as a passenger. And in another time I might've wanted, I might've been able to become a pilot. So for right now, I just fly as a passenger and have found some other interesting stories relating to my personal past that I can share with visitors um, and that inform my life and my work at the museum. But I'm fascinated by what you all have to say because it seems to me that one real important connection um, that I heard from a lot of you is just, how important it is to make connections within people in your field. And as I've looked at women in aviation, what I have seen is how important um, women were. Um, Certainly for many of you, you're not going to be able just to focus on on women in your profession uh, that you're looking forward to, but men and women, but those connections are what make a huge difference, aren't they?
0: Yeah, very, very uh, insightful thoughts. So thanks for that, Leslie. Um, We did have, um, before I get into some other questions, we did have one quick question that I missed when we were doing the Q&A, but I think it might, would be of interest to everybody. Someone asked, what is the most interesting question that you've ever received um, while a docent? Anything that strikes you as being like the most
6: interesting question somebody asked? Sorry, we we get so many questions that I just, I, I can't even pick one out. Um, mm-hmm. so, sorry, it's a really good question to ask and I wish I had a good answer for it. <laughs> yep, well, I certainly can recognize the training that
0: you must have to go through, I mean, with... The- you know everything that the museum has, and so being a volunteer, a docent does definitely uh, require you know both the education and then being comfortable. I mean, you can see from your talk how comfortable we are speaking. Um, I want to turn to the so anyone who has um, questions can put them in the chat for our panelists. Um, I'd like to start with the area of um, uh, mentors and advocates uh, for people in their careers. Um, uh, Claire had mentioned that. Uh, how important that was to her. So I'd like to start with this question. And and actually, um, Claudine, I'd like to, to, to ask you about it because being chair of the AIAA Diversity uh, Working Group, um, I, you know, I think it's well known that having mentors or advocates within one's um, career is really Needed, and I think especially uh, very important if you're underrepresented in a particular area. So maybe you might want to answer that question first about the importance of um, mentors and advocates, and maybe a little bit about what you, as your working group,
3: kind of recommends that people do for that. Over. Yeah. Um, you know, we, there was a question earlier about, um, you know, someone who has a child who's interested in aerospace or interested in STEM and AIAA has recently launched the high school um, memberships so those high school memberships are those high schoolers are able to get um, mentors in in AIAA which is amazing which is something you know I wish I had when I was you know in high school Um, so they are able to get um, mentors um, through AIAA um, we also have um, the, a number of programs where you, um, we have an official mentoring program within AIAA where you can sign up to be either a mentor or a mentee. Um, I personally, in my career, have always had a number of different mentors and advocates who are familiar with my work, who can, you know, when I'm not in a the room, they can say, you know, I think Claudine would be a great person um, to do this job. In fact, to be the um, Diversity and Inclusion League, I was a result of someone advocating for me because I had, as I was raising my daughter, I kind of stepped back from, you know, AIAA, et cetera, and hadn't been as engaged. And um, they know my daughter is now a teenager. So they were like, oh, maybe you can get back in. And, you know, it was a result of, you know, someone advocating for me. Um, I think it's really important to have diverse mentors. So um, not just someone who looks like you because that's gonna limit the perspective, that may limit the perspective of advice that you get, um, but having, you know, somebody who looks like you somebody who has similar background, but also someone who doesn't because you can get a 360 view of, you know, the challenges or the um, things that you're, you're, you're um, looking for guidance on um, and I always encourage people to have mentors and, you know, seek out mentors Um it's really important because, um, you know, no one can do it on their own, right? Everybody, I tell my nephews, you know, even the president of the United States has mentors, they have their counsel, because, you, you, you know, you wanna be intentional with your life, you wanna be intentional with the things that you do in your life, um, and you don't wanna always leave things to chance. So how, um, mentoring helps you plan what you're going to do in your life and your career. So I think it's really important. And I think AIAA is definitely um, developing the tools to help members at various levels um, connect with mentors.
0: Great, thanks, Claudine. Uh, Any other panelists wanna talk about a mentor in their uh, careers that uh, really was important in terms of uh, something that then brought them on their career journey?
1: I could say something which is slightly um, uh, an aside to that, which is sure. I completely second to Claudine's um, comments. And I actually have a little bit of a sad story on that, which is that it took me about 10 years into my career before I even had a mentor. I didn't know what mentors were. And I found out sadly that all of my male colleagues had had mentors for years. And so when I found out about it, I was like, why don't I have a mentor? And it actually does hold you back quite a bit while having one, but I went out and got five mentors. So then I got a, a really large supply of people helping me from different perspectives and hearing people's different perspectives is kind of the right way to do it. And I was in a management role, so that was the time for it. But because of that, I now actively participate as a mentor in in aerospace mentorship programs. There's two that are great for aerospace. One is Nat Fellowship, um, which is for new space jobs. It comes with a a executive mentor, could be me, and then also comes with a summer internship and and a great network of people. And the other is Rick Owens Fellowship, which is an aviation and aerospace mentorship program for women in those career fields. I'm also an executive mentor there also comes with a fellowship so it is so important to your careers to go out and seek that mentor as well as to be a mentor for other people
0: yeah no very very valid and it's, it's true I mean yeah mentors are so important and um, so <laughs> both to, to find some for yourself as well as to then pay it back going forward very very important Anita um, you know uh, I'll just share one quick story myself I Claire had mentioned about how, you know, she was originally thinking she'd be a teacher and then went into engineering and it was kind of the same thing for me too. I was in math and um, thought I'd be the teacher, right? I mean, that's um, kind of what I thought of the the career that if you were in, in math and I really didn't have folks around me that were in engineering at that time. And I was on a semester at C um, program and it was actually a history professor uh, of a class I was taking on in that program. And I was, you know, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, Oh, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to teach math. And, and of course he was a professor at the, the university and then teaching on the semester at C. And he said, well, he said, you know, if that is like absolutely your goal, that you just have this passion, that that's what you want to do is teach. Um, he said, that's great. But he said, if you as a woman are going into teaching because you feel like that's the only career available to you, have you ever thought about engineering? And so here, I think, you know, when I threw a flip back on that story, and it was after then I got off a semester at C, then I started looking into um engineering uh programs and then kind of turn toward that and so I think sometimes the other thing is about mentors is it, to um Claudine's point it's not you know it's kind of a diversity thing and you, you never know where kind of some of that career advice is going to come so here it was you know uh through someone that was a history professor, but really had a very profound message that then kind of changed the whole career arc. So um, you know, mentors and advice uh, can come from a lot of different places. Um, from our panelists, any other thoughts on uh, mentoring that uh, you'd like to share with everyone? Actually, I was just gonna me- mention one thing. Um, I, early in your
5: careers, I think definitely mentors are uh, absolutely important, but I think it just doesn't end early in your career. I think it's helpful um because uh i'm chair of the transportation practice and that's kind of what i always want to do well i always in my mind it was the aviation practice but our transportation practice encompasses our aviation maritime and trains whatever that falls within so um but then all of a sudden i'm like what are my next goals and I, 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 so I'm 46 I'm, I was kind of mid-career and I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute, this, this was my goal. I'm now there, what is, what is my next step? And actually it was kind of timely because all of a sudden the firm was kind of looking a lot of people had kind of reached this point where they'd kind of reached their goal in their career but they're just mid-career. So what is next for them? And so uh, we actually, our firm actually started a, nut, a mentor program where you know the people, kind of the generation ahead of us, um, you know, you kind of instead of having you know, basically help you move on from your goals that you've already achieved, and um, you know, formulate new goals and how to help you get there and how to help you see additional possibilities that are out there of things you can do, and not to just kind of like oh I've reached where I need to be and here I am. Um, so I think it's important throughout your career. To have a mentor, and uh, even you know, even when you're mid-career, and you know you're just kind of at a crossroads. Where do I go from here? And uh, so I think that's actually been very helpful. Mani, you, you are on mute.
0: Something?
2: Uh, yes. yes, just, you know, one quick point, it came to my mind, um, it might be useful here. So as we talk about mentors and advocates and sponsors I mean we all agree that it's very important for uh, our career as we go through this journey our career journey and how to um, expand our, you know, network or um, how to to be able to find these mentors, which uh, are so most of the time, the people we work with every day, those are the people we end up going to and ask um, if they would like to be as our mentor. Most have seen at least that was I was I was doing, and what I found out that. Um, it could limit the gain the their perspective or the topics we end up discussing because they are they are the ones who I'm working with on a regular basis. So uh, it wouldn't give me that 360 degree perspective as we were discussing before. So what I found useful um, to be able to find the you know build connections and find mentors um, from people who we don't know or we don't usually work with is by getting more involved in these um, uh, in these clubs that we have at our, at our workplace, like women in technology clubs or uh, a diversity club, for example, and both at uh, GE and at Ansys, I've been part of the women in technology clubs. And through that, I've been able to meet people who are really good mentors, and who I would have not met otherwise and I would not have gotten the opportunity to connect and learn from. And they exposed me to a lot of different um, uh, opportunities and also provided me very honest feedback because I was I was also not uh, very you know, inhibited in talking to them openly because I was not uh, working with them on a regular basis. So I was very open about what my challenges are, what where I want to focus on, how I want to grow. So just uh, you know that has that has helped me a lot. I just wanted to share that. Yep, yeah,
0: very very important point. Um, if anyone else has uh, otherwise I'll move to another area of uh, questioning and I just also want to remind uh, our attendees um, there is a and a um, area too where you can enter uh, questions so feel free as folks are talking if you think of any uh, questions um, please enter them in. Um, a couple of folks mentioned about um, you know the importance of Uh, professional associations, you know, AIAA or I think uh, when Jennifer was talking, she was saying about how, you know, a lot of the professional organizations that she's involved in, of course, are related to things that she's also doing in her career. So I want to give people's um, sense about what have you found to be specifically helpful uh, and what has the role of networking and professional groups been in your career development? And I also was interested in terms of, you know, is it... um, External organizations are also maybe being in as not as a heavily uh, uh, represented field by women, you know, have uh, some women's groups like Jennifer mentioned about the 99s, which is a Women's Pilots Association. Um, so what kind of impact have those had on your career, you, you know, professional groups, either uh, in terms of the, your broader career uh, area or say a women's group that provided um, support for you? Anyone would like to start with that? I I can go ahead and start. I think um, there's kind
5: of three uh, additional organizations that I've uh, been involved in and kind of the original one was the Aviation Insurance Association. And going back to my grandfather's is kind of, he was one of the original members of that. So what made it easy for me is even though originally um, there were really maybe 10 women out of 600 people Uh, that came, Uh, probably more than that, but it just seemed like there were very few. (laughs) And, uh, but what made it easy is because while my grandfather was no longer attending these, um, you know, I'd grown up knowing a lot of these people. So it made it easy for me. So it was actually almost going to a family event, even though, um, uh, and so I was able to uh, make a lot of connections and meet a lot of people. And a lot of people were willing to take me under their wing and essentially, because it went back to you know my um, my grandfather was just very well loved in the industry, so that um, that is a, a conference that I never miss, and I've um, and I've just made a lot of connections. Um, we get most of our work um, from the insurance companies that insure the um, aviation companies and manufacturing companies and airlines. So most of uh, so we're actually usually talking a lot to the insurance carriers. So, um, this has been a great organization for me. Um, Now, the 99s would be more of a social organization. Um, You know, it's uh, there's about, I think, I think there's about 6,000 members worldwide. Um, There's, you know, an an annual conference every year. And um, I'm actually on the board of the Southwest section of the uh, 99s. And I've just met a lot of great pilots. Actually, one of the founding uh, members of our chapter is a WASP. She's still alive. She turned 100. Uh, we had a Zoom birthday party for her. And um, and she's been great, too. This is kind of going along with the mentor. You know, she, she's 100. She just lost her medical to fly. But she's still flying because she flies with, a, with another pilot. Uh, but anyway, so, I mean, just she's kind of that... An essential aviation person that just loves it so much. She never, uh, you know, she's still, I think I met her when she was about 92. (laughs) And uh, I mean, she's still as uh, vibrant at 100 as she was at 92. (laughs) But, um, and then, uh, but going back to the last um, uh, organization uh, that um, I participate in a lot is the International Aviation Women's Association. And I do highly, anybody who is on the aviation side, I do highly recommend that one because um, it's basically women executives in aviation companies uh, that, and you have to go through an application process to make sure you're actually in aviation and you've been doing it uh, I think it's like five to 10 years. I can't remember. So it's not an, an initial organization you join, but it's when you reach the executive level. And there's probably, I think there's only maybe 300, 400 members. And a lot of them end up coming to this conference. Um, and it's just a, it's just a great organization to join. Because I think a lot of these women started this organization in, I, I want to say it was the 70s, just because there weren't a lot of opportunities, there weren't a lot of mentor opportunities, and they realized that they needed to do something, uh, if they wanted to continue to compete in these uh, aviation aerospace industries, and they've done a great job, and the the talent, the, um, the women that are in this organization are just phenomenal, and so um, you meet a lot of connections, and you just meet a lot of inspiring people. And um, and if, if there's any women out there looking for an an, an it's more aviation than I'd say aerospace. Um, but if there's anybody looking for that, I would highly recommend this organization.
3: Great, thanks, Jen, Jennifer, uh, Claudine. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm making notes of all these organizations that I'm not previously familiar with. So thank you for that. Um, When I was an undergrad, I served as president of the National Society of Black Engineers, and that gave me amazing leadership training. I had like a membership of hundred people, a board of 20 people. So that was really like, so these organizations provide leadership training um, they also. So, I also served as the head of the Women's Impact Network at Lockheed Martin in the Palmdale location. So that um, being the head there, it also gave me visibility and um, access to executives because they want to know how can they, um, you know, further the fight. What are some of the challenges that women in the organization are having? So, I definitely agree. Um, you know being part of these organizations, it's not just you know, professional development, but it's also um, expanding your network and also allowing you the pipeline. Most of um, these organizations all wanna further the pipeline of you know, whatever their objective is. So, um, you know, so it also gives you an opportunity to pay it forward, look at you know, people who are coming, into the industry who, um, you know, who can benefit from your mentorship, etc. So um, that's another purpose I think um, some of these organizations serve. Um, It also allows you to share, you know, recipes for success, um, uh, serve as a support group, and also um, advocate for certain issues, um, you know, that are relevant to the organization. So, so, So those are some of the um, benefits that I think um, being part of organizations provide.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the leadership opportunities is a really uh, key one. I member of Side Women Engineers since um, college as well, and um, we just had an event last night, the induction of the this year's um, SWE president, Rachel Morford. Actually, works at my company, the Aerospace Corporation, and you know, SWE as well does a lot. For women in um, uh, STEM careers and, and, and in engineering. So, um, and it is, there's a lot of leadership opportunities to your point, Claudine. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Claire, because um, I know that it's been, I think, just in the last year or two ago that you were inducted into the National Academy of Engineering. And I know that NAE really also focuses on um, bringing awareness. Uh, uh, for engineering, not just within the U.S., but globally as well, too. And um, so, I, any thoughts that you have related to um, either NAE or the role of professional uh, societies in terms of uh, bringing additional awareness to careers in aviation and aerospace?
4: Well, thank you. Um... So it was, yeah, it was definitely a nice recognition from NAE. I actually will be inducted in October. So oh, okay. So it's just um, so, it, so I'm still very new to the organization and I'm frequently invited to be on a panel or do this or that. And I'm still figuring out my way there. But what I one thing I want to get people to think about with respect to these organizations is to some level I'd view them as affinity groups. And you know, particularly if you know for particularly for women in engineering where you're often a minority you can feel very alone and it's getting better i i I know there's a lot of women at the aerospace corporation but uh but i think it's important particularly as you know young people come in you'll have a diversity of the workforce and they may feel like there's not there's no other young people around there's no other women young people so there there is research that says that if people can join affinity groups it can be it can make them bond to the organization better. So if we're worried about the pipeline and worried about women exiting the field, these affinity groups can be very important. Um, but one one event that I helped, um, I was with Boeing, I was executive champion for Boeing Women in Leadership, uh, but we held an event and it was kind of, it was at lunchtime, it was kind of very open forum, but what we ended up doing was dividing into kind of age groups of, um, you know, like young, and and the, the goal was to get groups of about 10 people together to share like problems. So you had the single women that were new to the company and trying to meet people. You had the young moms who had childcare frustrations. You had some of the older folks who had um, teenagers and teenage challenges. And then you had some other people who had older parents and And so we got them, each group then could brainstorm and share their strategies for coping because, you know, life's challenge, and this is probably a really good thing to do with COVID. You could do it virtually, but life is challenging and being able to get people together to share ideas and solutions. Again, it could be, you know, feeling stuck and looking for ways to get out of a current assignment and move on to something else, or should I get an MBA or whatever. But anyway, that ability to share experiences and and have other people of your same age group offer solutions as opposed to a senior person who says you know from on high oh you should do this um but but anyway these groups kind of offer those kinds of um, sharing opportunities and learning from each other
0: yeah definitely and your you know your point about the peer mentoring too it isn't just um senior to more junior but but you know that peer mentoring in terms of what people are experiencing and knowing that you're not alone with some aspect of what you're going through is really important. So, thanks, Claire. Um, Anita, as as an entrepreneur now, um, you know, I'm I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the networking and stuff you do in terms of being an entrepreneur and for your business, uh, what kind of professional organizations are most helpful, do you think, in this uh, arena of aviation or aerospace? Besides AWA,
1: yeah, of course. <laughs> I was going to chime in on that because I've had some experience <laughs> of late um, as part of a new proposal I'm putting in um, with the Air Force, where if I didn't have access to my professional network, and a lot of that coming from AWA and the Vertical Flight Society, I wouldn't have been as successful to sort of generate the support and letters of support that you often have to put with these types of proposals. <laughs> uh, the business side of things, professional organizations allow you to have a very focused aligned professional network with what it is that you're doing. And when you are on the entrepreneurial side, you're always in fundraising mode, whether that's applying for a grant, applying for a government contract, or applying directly to the investment community. And it is your network that facilitates those connections. Without it, you'd really be struggling, right? You'd be a tiny little plankton in in the ocean of the earth. Um, So for me, it's actually helped me quite a bit, both AIAA and Vertical Flight Society, um, with fundraising over the course of the past six months, as well as connections to help me put in additional government proposals. And then on the other side of that, when um, I'm looking to hire, I also consult my network. Um, and a lot of the people in my network, my most you know strong connections come from the people I've worked with over the years as part of being on a technical committee with AIAA and the newer people that I've met in the tall space. And then if you are the really young, early career hire, by joining in with those, um networks like it could be the young professional network with AIAA. that's how you get access to these jobs because you have people like me who are looking to hire you and the professional organizations provide that glue to connect those uh, different streams of people
0: great thanks anita um, and then uh, lastly question to you i mean to what extent uh, you know uh, do you feel like the role of um, you know museums such as the museum of flight and Uh, play in the public's eye in terms of, say, continuing support for the industry behind aviation and aerospace. So can you comment on how you feel that kind of
6: contributes uh, and the role that you play there at the museum? That's a hard question to answer. Um, It it would probably be something more for um, somebody in the administration of the museum (laughs) management than somebody like me, but, you know, if nothing else, just, you know, people come to the museum for various reasons, and many of the people that come are not particularly interested in looking at airplanes or spacecraft or whatever else we have, and so the role of a docent or another volunteer is to find something that they might find interesting, and so in some ways it's just to promote the whole idea of, of aerospace um to the general public and maybe there'll be a spark there you don't know right Um, but something somebody sees or a story they hear might might interest them to 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 go further Um, and of course we have such a great relationship with the Boeing company even though we're not at Boeing museum but um it's it's a really nice um partnership that we have and they help us a lot. I don't think we probably provide much for them, but um, so it's it's hard to know from my point of view.
0: Yeah, and actually, I think that's a really good point, Leslie, about the you don't know you know what kind of a spark or seed that you you've planted, and so I think that's a good message for all of us. Um, you know, whether it's we're mentoring, whether it's we're, we're we're sharing information about uh, something or some project we're working on. You know, you you never know how that seed that you've planted is going to spark either in a student or in another colleague or something you've shared has been particularly motivational. And we and you don't know, but you intuitively believe that some aspect of that does, you know catch on right and so that they'd likely then downstream that there are those those impacts and you know sometimes people do come back and then they will tell you things then they'll be you know um when we had the uh the uh ceremony for rachel and I, she graduated from usc actually my alma mater and i was the sweet advisor for a while there and she mentioned that i was the first person at aerospace that she had met and that's actually why she decided to come to work for aerospace hearing me talk about my career there. And I didn't even know that until she mentioned this, you know, and she's now been at the company 15 years, right? So you never know how just even, you know, any comment you might make might then contribute going forward. So I think that's a really, a really good point. Um, We have one question um, from uh, Janet LeGrandon who's gonna be um, moderating our next um, panel after our speakers. And it's more of a looking forward kind of question. Again, not one that's necessarily easy to answer, but we're certainly interested in hearing what the panelists would think. So what do you think the aerospace industry will look like in 20 years? How would you advise a young person to prepare for this future? Would anyone like to try to answer, um, start with answering that question?
1: Um, I'm happy to chime in. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I I am an absolute optimist here. And I think the new space sector is really taking over in terms of private investment going into a variety of companies. There's been an emphasis, I would say, on sort of new launch vehicle capabilities in the new space. But I think that's going to expand into in-space manufacturing, um, in-space resource mining, um, as well as maybe space-based power and potentially setting up a full infrastructure in space to support colonies on the surface of the moon or even the surface of Mars. So I think new space is going to be the thing um, moving forward. So any young person who's looking at getting a degree in aerospace engineering or something related to an aerospace project um, will have a lot of job opportunities. And it was really bad, I would say, in the 1990s, for those of us here probably remember that, but it has just taken off and I don't see it changing. So I think we have the dot-com era in the 2000s and the 2020, 2030, 2040 timeframe is going to be new space, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, know. I think, I think you're definitely right. Um, Anita, I'd like to ask you that question since you're associated as a, a research associate professor at USC. What, what do you tell some of the students that you run into there about this question of what you think it'll be like in 20 years and what advice do you give them?
1: Well, so I teach a graduate entry, descent and landing class to, to mm-hmm. basically teach them how to design systems to land people um, or more robotic systems, but also people. So I do think that we're going to have people um, living on the moon very soon. And I think we're going to have the first, you know, Mars colonies um, started maybe with a few people in the next uh, 20 years. So I think um, I like to think about that full gamut of possibilities. um, And I see things going beyond launch vehicles, where I think everyone has been focused for so many years. Even my first job was on launch vehicles into the whole variety of technologies and multidisciplinary engineering associated with being able to propel large quantities of cargo from, you know, here to the moon or to. Mars, as well as to set up operations on the surface of that. So there's just so many possibilities that almost anything you want to do in the engineering field or astrobiology um, uh, will work in these new extraterrestrial environments.
0: Great. Um, Claire, I know you were several years the director for the uh, system engineering program at Loyola and would obviously be involved in terms of kind of, you know, what are the needs there? And of course, you know, I'm also in the systems engineering field as well, too. So any thoughts there in terms of what you see in the future for, for that area and what you maybe uh, advise students
4: at LMU when you were there? Well, I, I don't think there's a question that the, you know, the future is about more and more complex systems. So... I do think having an engineering degree is a great start. Having some systems backgrounds is great, is great as well. But the you know whether it's going to the moon or to Mars or uh, contested space for you know military aerospace. Um, systems are just getting more and more complicated and being able to sort that out. But at the same time, trying to, to use open systems um, and leverage open systems, AI, machine learning and automation. And so I think that, you know, the combination of, you know, more automation, more autonomy, more complicated systems means, you know, engineers should have jobs for life. Yeah.
0: So yeah. well, and a lot of the things that Anita mentioned. I mean, in terms of the future in space, I mean, you, you, we know just from that how you know complex and how many integrated parts are going to be part of that. So you're right; it just kind of keeps increasing. And I think those, um, you know, interfaces and trying to have that holistic uh, picture, um, you know, from an engineering perspective, certainly those of us that are in the system engineering field feel like that's a really uh, valued thing, and that anyone, no matter whatever role they are, to use some of those kind of system principles and thinking principles can be um, can be very helpful. Um, someone had mentioned we're getting close to the end of the time. Uh, in about five minutes, we're going to be moving on to a couple of our uh, short, short talks that are here related to education. Um, I, I guess I'd like to, because um, someone had mentioned about this, you know, how important it is. Um, and I think it is true for all these, uh, whether it's commercial space or any programs in the future that are needed for aviation or the aerospace industry, you know, retaining uh, individuals. And I think we sometimes see, you know, demographics that will say that people come into the industry, they may even get a degree in engineering and they come into the industry and then maybe they they leave the industry for, for something else. And so I guess I'd open up to the panelists, um, you know, things that you have found that you think are really important that all of us say as leaders in this uh, industry um, need to be aware of and maybe to help with retention, because I think we all believe that we need, you know, full service across, um, you know, again, from a diversity, equity, inclusion, um, you know, people in the industry, but you know, maybe some thoughts that you have related to uh, not just how you get people in the field, but then how do we retain them? So any thoughts there?
3: I think one of the big things um, is also, you know, when we look at the incoming generation to the field, it's what is not, not just designing cool things, but what is a social impact? How does it help people? How does it further? where we're going as a humanity. I think, um, you know, always making sure that you're not only designing cool things and that you're taking on great challenges, but also, um, you know, making sure that you're having a big impact socially um, and furthering, you know, the challenges that people are having um, in a social standpoint, I think is also important to retention. Um, and, you know, as highlighted with the income and generation into the workforce, but I think we all can benefit from that. Yep,
4: definitely. I, I wanna foot stomp that. Um, I don't know who has the floor. Go ahead, Claire. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to foot stomp that. I think Claudine's exactly right. And I do think, you know, oftentimes women will leave the field because engineering is a little bit too geeky nerdy and not impactful enough. And um, I sort of feel like as a manager of people, that I was able to be very impactful and help people. So again, whether it's the products you design or the people you're working with or helping people get started, there's a lot of ways that you know, the skills that women kind of characteristically have in terms of nurturing and growing and contributing and wanting to change the world for the positive, all those things are very 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 po- possible with you know aviation and aerospace mm-hmm. but i think it's it's underrated so i think as we try to encourage women to go into engineering showing that social side and the you know global impact uh, is really really important so i think Claudine, you had a great point right
0: and i mean yeah, certainly, certainly it's really weird. Um, NAE's got the global challenges program that they do, which kind of does address that in terms of how engineering can be used toward all these just really impactful, uh, you know, programs, which of course run the gamut of, of things. But we also have, you know, when you look at commercial space and potentially, you know, going to other planets, I mean, you know, all of that can be very impactful to to society and um, and also a lot of the the, uh, the systems that we have, you know, I mean, obviously GPS being a Great example in terms of, you know, systems that really have had such and continue to have such an impact on people's lives, um, you know, across the globe. So very, very good point. Um, Any other final thoughts on this area of retention that anyone would like to weigh in? We have a couple minutes left.
2: Uh, i'd like to just quickly add one more uh, point here marley sure. uh, so uh, when we talk about workforce retention it's really very important and it's high on the agenda for both uh, on on the both the government side and also on the private sector side retaining uh, skilled and uh, skilled people in the aerospace industry and uh, one of the things that no that's also important to focus is um, up is upskilling the the current uh, uh, talent that we have the current employees that we have none of the initiatives that for example the air force has this uh, digital uh, university where uh, they continuously uh, they want their employees to be trained continuously on this, uh, on the digital uh, aspect of things. As, as as we know, that's a very important uh, initiative that's going on both from the government pushed by the DOD as, as well as now with the OEMs and Primes, the digital transformation journey. So that's also important to make sure the, the current workforce is well equipped and trained and they are continuously being upskilled on some of these Uh, tools and practices and the new uh, ways of doing things digitally and uh, being familiar with all the new new technologies, new ways of doing things and the new standards and, and uh, uh, the processes that come with it. So that's, uh, that's uh, I, I feel it's also important part to uh, make sure we, we keep providing these resources to our uh, workforce. Yeah, thanks
0: Swati. And uh, would that raised hand was yours? The, yes, or is it? Niyati,
7: ne- Nea- Neat- that was your raised hand. Yes.
0: Hi. Yes. There. She hi, is. everyone. The
7: first. Hi. Um, first of all, I like to thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk because y'all are so experienced and so ahead that I feel really honored to even be a part of this. Um, but I really wanted to add on the mentorship part and retention part, especially. So I finished my masters. I worked for a little while, actually, indirectly for Ansis, and. Uh, I am currently doing my PhD for people who don't know. And I'm also the president for Women Affairs Space for Mississippi State. There, I realized that I worked for the last year as a TN, now working as an RA. I've realized that when being a mentor is extremely helpful because as you mentioned, uh, you do not know the lives you touch and what you speak might affect somebody so it happened that i was teaching the first one on one class and there were like 155 students and there were over 50 women in it and uh, after talking to them and attending classes i think they they found that it was a little harder because I would say that they were really scared being the minority, I think. And there are way more uh, men in it. And I think for some reason, I noticed that men had more um, trainings or sort of camps they had visited. In their high school so what happened is it gave them an edge over everybody else and women did not get that so when they started their undergrad and they were in the first year they realized men were already answering questions they were already ahead so i think that made them feel that they did not belong there because when i asked that's what they told me and when i was um, when i got elected as a president for women of aerospace Um, I realized there were so many women before um, that, before I was a part of it, for some reason it wasn't as active and people had left and there were not many women doing grad school and then in the university. So being that as a mentor, I think a lot of women tend to not start groups or actively participate in it. But once I started doing that, thanks to Canon AIA, because I was a part of it before when I was working, I realized that we need women, a lot of women to be there. So when I started uh, actively doing this organization, we ended up having more than 30 people at the moment. So there are 30, over 30 women, and there are two just men in it who are trying to help us out. And um, after talking to them, I realized that retention starts very early. So, uh, like, they, all they need is a push, I think, when they're in their university phase, because only then I think they can remain in the industry and continue once they have mentors strongly rooted during the university phase. I am, again, I'm not as experienced as anybody on the panel over here. I'm still working towards my doctorate, but I think once they get really confident when they're in the university and they are part of these organizations, such as the IEA and Women Affairs space, or um, I was even a part of Solar Patrol for a very short amount of time. And I think that having that um, support from other women and encouragement, I think goes a really long way for the retention in the industry, I would say. Thanks, Nayati, for that
0: perspective. Um, Claire, did you have a quick comment? Um, did I see your well, hand? I, right? I was
4: actually uh, looking for the the hands clapping or something because I oh, just wanted clapping. to completely. Oh, okay, yeah. I
0: wanted to completely <laughs> agree, and
4: I think providing a little tiny bit of support when somebody's feeling vulnerable and emotional and ready to quit is just really important. And I, I've done a lot of research into the pipeline and why people fall out. And if people can get that support, we can keep the pipeline moving as opposed to thinning, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, very good. So reinforcing what I said, well, we're going to have to stop on this panel because we've got lots of really great stuff coming on in the program. I, I want to thank the panelists, as Neody said, you know, just an esteemed group. Uh, I was so honored to be able to have all of you on the panel. And uh, so I thank you for being willing to take your Saturday and share your experiences with us. and as Ken said, we did it, um, so it'll be put available for folks who maybe weren't able to be with us today. So, so thank you all. Um, I'm going to turn now to our uh, next speaker. And actually, you know, we were kind of talking about getting people into the industry and retaining people, and of course, um, having uh, teachers that are can teach on these subjects is very important. So, um, our next um, speaker for a very short talk is going to be Miss Tanya Schroeder. She's an exhibitor for uh, Encore and the STEM Teachers Program. And she's in the Southern California Recruitment Coordinator who are always looking for people to be in this STEM Teachers Program. So I'm going to turn it over to you, uh, Tanya, to talk about um, Encore. Over to you.
8: Hi, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, everyone, for having me. Um, as you mentioned, this is kind of a great follow-up as, we're, as I'm hearing information about the importance of mentorship. So I'm going to just share a little bit about Encore STEM Teachers Program and um, how we impact education. Um, so Encore STEM Teachers Program is uh, an organization that works with STEM industry professionals, and we help them transition into education, whether that is a pathway into teaching or tutoring. Um, doing one-on-one virtual math tutoring. And our goal is to help uh, high needs students. Um, so we work with students in low-income communities. And uh, we work with STEM industry professionals because we know that your um, skill sets and your firsthand knowledge and experience, life experience can really make an impact in the classroom. So every year Encore um, tutors or fellows are impacting or working with about 35,000 students. And these are just some scores that have come back from uh, classrooms, um, the students and school uh, administrators. So we always, we've been getting really consistent response rates of students who um, have an increased interest in math or science after working with a fellow. Um, the teachers also report that the students have much more engagement And um, so we've been getting really great feedback from all of the work that the fellows and tutors are doing with these students. And uh, the reason that we're doing this is because we want to close that achievement gap. So as you can see on this uh, spreadsheet, these are um, results from math scores. And as you can see, um, African American students and Latino and Hispanic students are at the bottom of this chart showing that there is still a very strong achievement gap. And so we are um, targeting on trying to close this achievement gap and supporting students and um, helping everyone achieve and succeed Uh, so the two ways that we do this is through a teaching fellowship so like i mentioned we offer a pathway to becoming a full-time teacher Uh, we work specifically with high need schools Uh, there is a flexible timeline so the people who go through this fellowship uh, can make that transition from the industry to teaching uh, within one to three years And we do this specifically in California, Colorado, and New York. So little by little Encore is starting to expand to other states. Um, And then we have a STEM-X tutoring program. This is a virtual math tutoring program. It's a volunteer opportunity, and we're also working with high-need schools And uh, we're looking for tutors who can give two hours a week um, per semester uh, to work one-on-one with a student. It's a flexible schedule, so the tutors are able to work with the students and their caretakers um, to decide what time is best for tutoring. So this could be during a lunch break. uh, It could be on the evening. It could be on weekend mornings. And because it's virtual, it's a national program, which is really great. Um, so I want the fellows to speak for themselves, so we have a video um, that will talk a little bit about what it's like uh, for STEM industry professionals who transition into teaching, and I will play that. I
9: grew up in the South Bronx.
8: Um
9: Didn't have any interest in aviation or aerospace until I met my seventh grade teacher who got to be a pilot and realized, like, I want to be like Rough Garden because he flew a Cessna on the weekends. Prior to becoming a teacher, I was director of operations for the U-2 aircraft, responsible for mod maintenance and flight operation.
0: They always are surprised when I say that, oh yeah, I used to be an architect or an engineer. My daughter was in middle school. Then I realized that students don't like math and they don't really know math either. And it's not even their fault. So that's when I decided that, oh, I
9: always wanted to be a teacher. I always liked teaching math. So maybe I should look into getting a career in teaching. I've worked on some of the most amazing aircraft uh, that's out there. That satisfaction equals the satisfaction of a student who comes into class with no awareness for aerospace engineering, but by halfway through They are 110% engaged, and you can see them embracing that knowledge. So I think if you just walk into an encore classroom, into our aerospace engineering classroom with Julian Lewis, you can feel a difference. It's palpable. And I think the difference is that rich body of real world experiences helps students understand to really see their own future. And Julian brings that every day.
10: Oftentimes I'll walk in and I'll find him uh, putting up pictures of past projects that he personally has worked on in his professional career and drawing the students into what it must have
11: been like for him to be working both in the team and on his own in the real workplace.
0: So when I first thought, well, I'm gonna look into how I could become a teacher. uh, I did a lot of research and I was like, yes, I'll have to do this on my own. I can have somebody help me figure out how to get a credential, help me figure out if I would be a good teacher.
9: Uncle was very instrumental. That was the roadmap to getting me into the classroom. It's very rewarding. At the end of the day, what's going to be your legacy? What have you impacted? And as I share my experience, they are realizing that I too can do that. They will be other individuals, because I'm here. And that keeps me getting up. I truly enjoy.
8: All right, so that was a little bit of information on the fellowship, uh, just through the eyes of fellows, which I think is really great just to show how much it means to them as much as the impact that they make on the students. And then just to share a little quick, a quick snapshot on the tutoring program. Um, these are the students that we work with so uh, this provides a breakdown from an example of one of the schools that we're working with that we're partnering with in Los Angeles. Um, but we are working with middle school students that are in grades, uh, six to eight, mostly they'll be sixth graders. And the subjects can be uh, geometry, pre-algebra or algebra one. And something unique about the STEMX tutoring program is that all tutors have access to a site coordinator who works at the school. So they have direct access to curriculum from class um, and to be able to share notes back and forth with the teacher. So we wanna make sure that there is alignment with what's going on in the tutoring sessions and what's going on in the classroom. However, I also want to point out that because we're working with people who are bringing in their own expertise and knowledge, um, we don't offer any formal um, curriculum for the tutoring sessions. Everyone comes in with their own creativity and their own ability to be able to um, show what they do uh, in their everyday life and um, bring that into these tutoring opportunities. Uh, So in case anyone has any questions about Encore or um, you know someone who might be interested in participating with us, um, there is my email address. Uh, But I was really excited to hear um, when I tuned in a little bit uh, a little bit ago, all the conversation about mentorship and the importance of mentorship, because I know that this is exactly the right audience that understands uh, the work that Encore does and the uh, effort that we need to make in these classrooms to start that engagement at a younger age. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, and if anyone has any questions, um, please feel free to send me an email. And thank you for allowing me to have a couple minutes here to share about Encore um, during your break.
0: Thanks, Tanya. And yes, uh, please, you've got her e- email address or if she'll be here a little bit longer, as you move into to the next part of the program, I'm sure she'd be willing to answer some questions um, in the Q&A too. Um, you know, a really great program. Uh, you know, a lot of folks that are in the, um, you know, sciences and engineering then are um, you know, uh, retiring and or wanting to do something different in terms of uh, paying it back. So I think this program is obviously something to keep spreading the information on. And if you all have any of you have colleagues, it, you know, it, that might also be interested to certainly share uh, this this information with them as well, too. So thank you, Tanya, for for being here and talking about that program very related to what we were talking about on the panel. Definitely. Thank you. Um, Next, we have a really great example of a a rising star talking about um, students doing amazing things. Um, We're going to next hear from um, Ms. Uh, Isis Guignard. She is going to give a special presentation talking about her development of the STELLA application. She is a junior at the Winwood School. Couple key things you probably noted in the program. She's got a 4.0 GPA. She's president of her high school's Junior Scientists Club. Um, she does mentoring herself to the robotics team, and so she has uh, been working on this application that helps people working in isolated spaces cope with mental health issues, which of course is very important now. Um, you know, for, for things related to the pandemic that we all have been um, uh, working and coping with. So I'm gonna turn it over to um, Isis for her presentation on the development of the Stella app. Over to you.
12: Hi, my name is Isis Guignard and I'm 16 years old. This fall, I'll be a junior at Winward School. I've been working on this app since I was 13, so for about three years now. Since then, I've developed five different versions of the app I'm about to show you. This is Stella 5.0. I started working on this app while attending the Willows Community School for junior high, and I continue to update and develop the prototype because I constantly find new ways to improve it. The story of Stella begins with a problem. The problem was the lack of research being done on the mental health of people working in isolated spaces. Originally, I thought this only applied to astronauts, but I soon realized there are a lot of professions that require people to be alone for long periods of time, away from their families, living with their coworkers for months on end. These jobs include, but aren't limited to astronauts, underwater research teams, researchers in Antarctica, and more. Even before the pandemic, I knew that not being able to leave your environment and interact with others would have a huge impact on someone. I also had a hunch that being surrounded by the same people for extended periods of time could lead to conflict. This is something we all felt this past year, and we were surrounded by loved ones. Imagine being surrounded by your coworkers 24-7 and having minimal outlets for your stress and anger. These high-stress situations can cause a person to develop mood disorders such as anxiety and depression. Although some people have a predisposition to these mood disorders, during my research, I found out that other things can trigger them as well, such as a traumatic event, a lot of stress in one's life, and prolonged feelings of loneliness. Why does this need to be solved? Well, commercial space travel is growing in popularity. One day, taking a rocket to Mars or the moon will be just as common as flying to anywhere on Earth. However, in order for this to be appealing to the general public, you're going to need to get rid of the months of training required before a mission to space. Most people won't be able to afford it, and the others just won't want to do it at all. But first, we need a way to figure out what happens to humans when are in isolated spaces for extended periods of time. This is where Stella comes in. Stella is made up of multiple components that focus on the different factors that contribute to our mental health. The first component is exercise. Exercise can be very helpful in someone's mental health journey. When you exercise, your body releases chemicals called endorphins, which trigger a positive feeling in the body. Regular exercise has been proven to reduce stress, improve sleep, boost self-esteem, and ward off anxiety and feelings of depression. So each day, a person would log the number of hours they worked out and the type of workout they did to see if it has a positive correlation to their mood. Next, we have sleep. The amount of sleep a person gets and the quality of sleep a person gets will affect their entire day. Sleep is crucial for the brain to function. By logging these things every day, we can find specific patterns in a person's behavior based on what they logged. Astronauts have to set artificial bedtimes to fall asleep, and it can be difficult for them to get good quality sleep regularly. Some signs of depression are sleeping too much or not sleeping enough. A psychiatrist would be able to look at their sleep patterns along with the emotions that they log feeling and see if they had a serious problem. Next is diet. Diet can play an extremely important role in a person's mental health as well. Skipping meals can make a person irritable, and a lack of a nutritious diet can cause a person to have mood swings. I included a component of the app where people log how many meals they eat during the day. How many bottles of water they drink, the number of calories consumed, and the different nutritional values of the food they ate. Using this information, we can track whether a person is overeating, undereating, using food as a coping mechanism, and help them better understand how their eating habits are affected by mood or vice versa. This is the journal section of the app, where people can take notes on how they're feeling, what happened in their day, and log their emotions. At the bottom of the screen on the right-hand side, there are six emojis representing the following mood. Happy, sad, angry, anxious, annoyed, and tired. You can pick multiple moods and for each mood, you would rate it on a scale of one to 10. This is a mood intensity scale, which will help your psychiatrist find patterns in your behavior. If a person logs any emotion above a five for a certain number of days in a row, both the person and their psychiatrist will be notified. This is because abnormal mood swings could be a sign of a mood disorder. The notes portion of the app is a great way to monitor someone's emotions because you get an in-depth look at some of the factors that contributed to their overall mood throughout the day. Talking to anyone could be helpful in someone's mental health journey, but talking to a psychiatrist is essential because they help people develop insight into what is making them unhappy in their life. Here, a person can set up appointments with a psychiatrist in addition to the one regular appointment each week. This way, people can get more help where they see fit. Additionally, a psychiatrist would be able to look at everything a person logged in the app. This includes exercise, diet, sleep, and notes. The data collected along with the weekly sessions with the psychiatrist will optimize the care the person will receive because their psychiatrist will have a better understanding of their day-to-day and how they react to different situations. Abnormalities in a person's mental health will be spotted sooner and the quality of treatment each person's receives will be optimal because Stella doesn't just rely on what is said in weekly appointments to better help the person. But it looks at the full picture. It takes into account the things that we do in between sessions, both good and bad. This is what gives every user a very personalized experience. Lastly, we have the calendar portion of the app where it all comes together. We can look at patterns. You get to see what emotions you loved each day of the month and the intensity of those emotions. When you click on the emotions, you get a brief synopsis of the things you did that month that contributed to each mood, strategies from your psychiatrist on how to better handle situations, and recommendations on what you should continue to be doing. This way, a person can reflect on their month and see what works for them and what doesn't. Here's a demonstration of the app in action. The <laughs> other I've been working on Stella for three years by myself, but now I think I'm ready for some help. My goals for this project are to continue my research with experts in different fields at companies and universities. I would also like to implement my app by testing it in different environments. Northrop Grumman has already contacted me and is interested in helping me pursue this goal and other career goals that I have in aerospace. However, if anyone here is interested in working with me on this project, contact my mom, Chantal Randolph, at ChantalArianaAol.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you, Isis. As you can see in the comments, very uh, very inspirational, and in the fact that you've been working on this app since you've been been uh, been thirteen. I, I guess we've got a few minutes here. Um, tell me, um, tell the group how it is that you got um, kind of interested in this area of. Um, uh folks that are in isolated areas uh, you know and what they might need and then what caused you to start developing the app and also how you came to name it stella
12: well uh while i was attending wills community school i was on the robotics team and uh every year we participated in first robotics which is a robotics competition for people of all different ages i was in the middle school division and uh, the theme for the project that year was space. And so I figured that most people uh, were gonna talk about missions to Mars cause that was really popular that year, uh, going to Mars and setting up living situations there. So I thought about, well, how would it be to be so far away from everyone you loved? I mm-hmm. can't even imagine being in a different state but like a different planet, that seems crazy. So. I was thinking about the mental health and how we make people feel. And I started doing research on that. And um, not a lot of research had been done at that point. And there's still so much that we need to figure out. So that was my question. That's how this project started. I named it Stella because on my middle school, we had to learn Latin. And Stella means star in Latin. So I thought it was a perfect fit.
0: Very good fit. I wondered if that was, was why you named it that. Very, very creative. So yes, good, uh, continued uh, uh, best wishes uh, for both your high school. And then as you decide what you're gonna go on and do, um, what kind of um, things are you thinking about in terms of um, uh, university? What you would like to, to do or,
12: um, you know, for a career? What are your thoughts on that? I want to be a mechanical engineer because engineering is really interesting to me, and mechanical engineers get to do a little bit of everything, and I just think that's really cool. Very
0: cool, yeah. And I'm sure the robotics, working with that, really um, also cemented that interest because they always do very cool things in robotics. Both mechanical engineering as well as what you're showing with this app, you know, there's a lot of software development, obviously, in the robotics as well too. So it's kind of a combination of things. So so that's great um so again thank you for uh being willing to come here part of our program and and present and um as folks said she gave the uh email of her her mom if you're interested in following up it's great to hear Northrop Grumman is is interested in uh continuing this and I know they probably are very interested also in supporting you and, and some of your high school uh, uh, colleagues related to in this area as well too, because it's certainly very important for the um, continuation of, of STEM careers, which we, which we all need. So thank you very much, Isis, for that, for that presentation. And it will be um, uh, archived and put on the AWA website for other folks to listen to too. So continued, continued best wishes. Thank you. Um, I am going to turn it now over to another um, stellar aerospace professional, and I, I, I use the word stellar because she is the vice president at Stellar Solutions, uh, vice president of intelligence programs. Stellar Solutions is a women-owned business that provides high-impact engineering services to um, a number of uh, very impactful for programs. Um, Ms. Janet Grondon is a AIAA senior member. Um, she will be the moderator of our next of our next panel. Uh, previously to working at Solar Solutions, she was a director at um, Northrop Grumman and then before that had a very distinguished career uh, culminating in being a colonel for the US Air Force, where she worked um, on a number of uh, Air Force satellite launch. And uh, launch range systems. Um, She's also very active in professional societies. She's a former president for uh, Women in Defense, the Greater Los Angeles uh, chapter of which I'm also a member of, and she is also an executive board member for the National Defense Industrial Association of the Greater Los Angeles chapter. So I'm going to turn the program over now to um, Janet. Who's going to introduce her panel? And um, so over to you, Janet.
13: All right. Well, thank you, Marilee, I appreciate it. Um, boy, this has been a fantastic day. I mean, hearing from everybody and um, so many, uh, so many accomplished uh, women on this, uh, on this on this on uh, this event today. So, thank you to AAAA for putting it on, and Marilyn, uh, thank you for doing. Uh, a lot of the moderating here, so it's been a great day. Um, so on this panel, I think it's the last event of the day and uh, we have a really quite a treat for everybody. Um, I want to, um, inter- I'm gonna go around and introduce uh, each of our panelists and then we're going to uh, hear from, from each one about what they're doing right now. So uh, Dr. Aki Reberge, um and Aki, Dr. Raberj, if you're here, if you would um, put your, uh, put your your video on, I'd appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Oberge is a research astrophysicist in the exoplanets and stellar astrophysics lab at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. So she has a bachelor's degree in physics with a planetary science minor from MIT and a PhD from Johns Hopkins in astrophysics. So her work focuses on planet forming disks around nearby young stars and future space observatories to observe planets around other stars. Dr. Roberge received the National Exceptional Achievement Medal for her work on the Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor, I believe that's pronounced Louvois, uh, a future state space telescope aimed at searching for signs of life. So welcome, uh, Dr. Roberge. Uh, Ms. Janelle Wellens, she is an instrument operations systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She has a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from MIT, and her work focuses on planning, generating, and validating commands to operate scientific instruments in flight, as well as monitoring their health and safety. So she's currently working multiple projects, including one that sounds really cool to me, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, among many others. Um, And Janelle was recently awarded the JPL Bruce Murray Award for inspiring students to engage in STEM, quenching their thirst for knowledge and sparking curiosity greater than the stars in the sky. So welcome Janelle, glad to have you here today. Uh, Ms. Marilyn McPolin, she's the director of events at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. She has 20 years in aviation, including producing a wide variety of never been done before events. Um, like the X Prize and multiple air shows. So she's currently working on over 60 events and creating a documentary of the Dominguez Hills 1910 air meet, which I hope we hear more about in the future. Um, and she has had the good fortune of piloting the only two-place British uh, supermarine Spitfire MK9 in the world, in the U.S. She's worked with Bob Hoover, Donald Douglas Jr., air show performers Sean D. Tucker, Wayne Hanley, and astronauts Buzz Aldrin, Jane Cernan, Tuskegee Airmen, WASP, and members of the Flying Tigers. So can't wait to hear about um, what Marilyn's been doing. She's uh, got quite a, quite a um, uh, experience base there. Um, we also heard from Niati earlier, Nyati Chakshi. She's a PhD candidate at the Begley College of Engineering at Mississippi State University. She has a master's degree in aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical engineering um, from Cal State Long Beach. She's a project manager with experience in computational fluid dynamics, and she has participated in a rocket competition among uh, many other things. So really excited to hear from Nyati about what she's doing in her doctoral uh, work. And Ms. Kathleen Prudet, she's the director of STEAM initiatives for the Lead California Charter Schools She has a master's degree in in STEM education and more than 10 years teaching STEM, uh, teaching gifted math and science as well as remedial math. She's flown on four NASA SOFIA missions and that's uh, including one with astronaut uh, John Grunsfeld. So she is a NASA Endeavor Leadership Distinction Award recipient and a certified glider pilot. She's been married for over 30 years. She has four sons and a multitude of hobbies that includes soaring, reading, scuba, classical piano, and many other things. So looking forward to hearing uh, Kathleen's um, comments on, on how she integrates all that together. And finally, Miss Laura Duffy, uh, space systems engineer for Canyon Consulting and PhD student at Colorado State University. Um, she has a master's degree in astronautical engineering with research on orbital resonances. As a consultant, she performs modeling and simulation Ground Systems Development, and Mission Design for Advanced Position Navigation and Timing Satellite uh, called NTS-3. Laura is an Air Force veteran. She has experience with Global Positioning System and Space Battle Management and Control. And her efforts led to the successful launch of uh, the first GPS-3 satellite on a Falcon 9 in December of 2018. So welcome, Laura. Just really happy to have you here and um, can't wait to hear more about Orbital Resonance. So, so uh, as you can see quite a, uh, a distinguished panel this afternoon. Um, and I guess I'd like to start out with um, you know, kind of a quick question to kick things off and please put your questions in the, in the chat. But, but before we, we get to audience questions, I want to um, kick things off and, and have you, you each tell us about your job, your day-to-day, you know, what's important to you like to know you know is are you in your dream job if not you know what is your dream job what what do you what do you want to do um so Kathleen I think we'll start with you
14: okay thank you I'm always amazed that I get to be part of a group like this because I look at All the talent and skills and I think wow how did I land here. So I am in a dream job. I think I may have the best job in the world because I get to use, well I get to work with young people. I get to work with educators in an organization where um, we use project-based learning and social-emotional learning as the educational delivery system. So before that was cool we were doing it. And I was an educator for quite a long time, and and so got all those beautiful skills and then moved into this position. And what do I do? Well, as the director of STEAM initiatives, I have a couple of roles. Probably the most fun one is that I get to create six to eight week long projects. And since my focus is aerospace, we create these um, beautiful opportunities for kids to learn the standards that they have to learn in their subject matters, when, and we're K-12, so these projects morph depending on the kids, and the kids have opportunities to do real stuff. So we talked a lot about today, like, how did we get here? And often, um, there I heard stories about, well, my dad or my grandpa, or there was connections. A lot of times right now, kids don't have that. Um, especially the ones that I work with in Southern California, especially kids that um, come from lower social economic situations. So giving a kid an opportunity to learn about um, a glider and to actually work on a simulator and then go fly a glider as part of understanding physics. (sighs) So that's the sort of stuff I get to do space and aviation, because that's where I landed. Um, I also get to coach um, facilitators, or we call them teachers. So that really fills my heart because at the age that I am or the place I am in my life, what I really want to do is have an eye to legacy. So what are the kids that I'm pouring into? What are the other um, teachers that I'm pouring into? Because I'm moving towards that time in my life where I probably won't be doing this full time. So I love what I do because it uh, keeps me growing I'm usually the person in the room with respect to stuff we do, like when we send experiments to space, I have to learn so much to be able to do that. So it's the best of all worlds for me in the education arena. And I love that I get to work with people who are doing the real deal stuff and connect the kids and connect the teachers. So thanks for letting me be here.
13: That's fantastic, Kathleen. Thank you. It sounds exciting. I want to just jump in your classroom right now. It sounds like fun. <laughs> um, we are going to, we're still, uh, Dr. Virge is on her way. And so we're going to um, go straight to Janelle. Um, Janelle, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, are you in your dream job? And if not, can you tell us what that is?
10: sure I mean the dream job question is so interesting because when I thought about it you know I had the dream company when I was in MIT when I was at MIT I kept hearing about this magical JPL place that I had never heard of before oh we're gonna land something on Mars like JPL we're gonna send a satellite to Saturn like JPL and I started to realize this JPL place might be like the real deal but I never actually landed the internship at JPL. So when I accepted the full-time offer, that was my first time. And I was ready to sign that line as soon as I could. It didn't matter where they placed me. I was just excited to be there, that they gave me a chance. And that's when I learned that my job title was going to be Instrument Operations Engineer. And to be brutally honest, had no idea what in the world that what is an instrument operations engineer but I quickly was trained surrounded by a great team that let me learn that I have one of the coolest jobs you could ever have in the world of space because it's my job to work with scientists to actually operate the instruments that we put on our spacecraft you know I like to think of it like uh, the spacecraft and the instruments you know the spacecraft's like your vehicle it gets you to the place that you want to go that you want to learn more about and then these scientific instruments are the ideas. It's the scientists asking the how, the what, the why. And we build these instruments to answer those questions. And so I work with them to build commands here on Earth, on the ground, the ones and zeros that the instruments are going to understand to carry out those and execute those commands so that we get return in return this amazing science data that comes in all shapes and forms. So that's my job in a nutshell, and it most certainly has become my dream job for sure.
13: <laughs> well, fantastic! Thank you, Janelle. I, uh, I I have a million questions I want to ask you right now, and uh, so we're we're gonna come back to you for sure because uh, that's really exciting. Um, okay, so well, uh, Marilyn, like to uh, can you talk to, to us about what you do and whether or not you're in your dream job? Yes, thank you, Janet, and thank you for hosting this 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 exciting panel. Um,
11: you know. I, Kind of like Janelle. I had to stop and think about that. I've been blessed. I've had so many dream jobs. Um, And each one that I've taken on, I didn't know that it was going to be a dream job until I got into it. Uh, So I was just incredibly fortunate. I was director of marketing for a naval air station, which was my transition into aviation. Um, Eventually down the line, I I produced air shows, um, some very high level ones, you know, Blue Angels, that kind of stuff. Um, and I became a director, one of the directors at the Museum of Flying in Santa Monica, California. I'm gonna guess as people who aren't in California don't exactly aren't familiar with that. Um, from there, I made a couple of transitions and then ended up at the X Prize. Uh, And so that was fa- fantastic. I was a senior director of operations there and learned all about rockets, which I had no knowledge of at the time. And I was overseeing a team of aerospace engineers that had graduated from like MIT and Harvard, not too intimidating. Um, and then, you know, somewhere along the line, I made a couple of other transitions and now I'm in higher education and I never expected that I would land here. Um, but it, I'm an administrator and some of the things that it has allowed me to do and being in this is sort of taking my broad based background and all the different areas that I've been, ex- uh, been involved with. And one of the areas, and and Janet, you touched on in my bio, that I'm sort of involved is uh, being able to channel my creative energy and helping facilitate and further a documentary on the 1910 air meet. And the reason why that's so unique is the 1910 air meet, obviously, was the first air meet in the United States, but it took place on the grounds of the university that I work at in Carson, California so my knowledge of early aviation is not extensive in any way shape or form but what i bring to the table is throughout my broad-based experience i know a whole lot of people and so i've been able to facilitate conversations with people and organizations that they were having trouble connecting with and producing this documentary so that's just one of a small part but you know um, similar to what kathleen said you know i enjoy the process of being able to basically, you know, educate a bunch of brilliant brains and sending them out into the workforce. And I don't really come in contact with students a whole lot, but being able to see this process and in some ways being able to have the conversation conversations, well, why aren't we doing this as a university? You know, why aren't we having this curriculum? Not being an educator, sometimes I can see things differently than people who are educators on the inside. Um, But anyway, in a nutshell, that's why that's my experience and I'm honored to be here with all of the other
14: women professionals today. Thank you.
11: And I'm just gonna
14: pop in and say last year when we met, I got to meet Marilyn last year and she said, Hey, if you ever need anything, don't ever ask me that question. And so (laughs) Marilyn sat on our assessor panel to choose the Uh, from this year's mission, where kids learn about microgravity, why does an astronaut float, they learn about experiment design, and then they develop an experiment that could be sent in a little mixed tube that NanoRacks creates, um, and then we send those up. And Marilyn sat on our assessor panel and helped to select the next two experiments that are going up on SpaceX, what is it, 25. So that, it's so great to see you again, Marilyn. It's great to see
11: you and I thoroughly enjoyed the process. It was was so much fun and I learned from your
13: students. So that was so much fun. That's awesome. And it ties back to, you know, I heard Claire say it a number of times and other people about networking, you know, I mean, it's all about Connecting people and look how much more you can get done just by connecting to people. So that's a great uh, real time example today. So All right. So thank you, Marilyn. Um, Niyati, would you, uh, would you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? I know you probably, I don't know, if being being a PhD student is your dream job forever. <laughs> that would be pretty hard. But give it, uh, Can you tell us about what you've done and what your dream job is?
7: Yes, ma'am. I My dream job is actually to be an astronaut, and uh, I have done a few hours of my pilot training, but I couldn't do a lot of them because I was doing my master's back then. It was a little hard to get into um, and save up for that. But then after I graduated with my master's, I was working for a company called ANSYS, and it was doing fluid flow analysis because I really enjoy Um, computational fluid dynamics aerodynamics hydrodynamics so my current research is also based a lot on that and parallel computing using parallel computing to make uh, computational fluid codes faster and um, I'm currently working on that and I'm hoping to one day go and work for NASA and uh, I know there are so many companies coming up and uh, these days, I know there's SpaceX, there's uh, Blue uh, Blue Origin, um, and everybody's trying to go to space. But I think I'm the traditional person, and I really want to work. As she said, you know, everybody talks about JPL does this, JPL does that. So yes, that's one of my dream jobs. I'm also currently um, enjoying being the president of the Mars Space in my university. And uh, I get to learn so much every day from them. They are just—I feel like I finished my undergrad a long time ago now because all the undergrad students are so much more advanced in so many things. I already think about that every day, and I'm really glad that I got this opportunity
13: to be here. Well, fantastic! We're thrilled to have you and. Uh... You're, I think out of this panel, you've, you've already been connected with two or three people who can, who can help you with your NASA goals. So, so, that's, so that's excellent. Um, all right, so Laura, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do and, um, and your dream job as well?
15: Yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, I'm honored to be part of this panel. It's funny as an early professional, you're usually on the listening end. So it's nice to be invited to speak as well and share my perspective. Um, hopefully, I have something to share that you all can gain from. So, I'm a space systems engineer working for a consulting company. We uh, consult for the Air Force Research Laboratories right now. And I'm the main orbits person on the program. And I love orbits. I think they're just so beautiful how things move in space. And the fact that I get to be the head of orbits for this program is so cool. So, yes, it is my dream job right now. <laughs> The other advantage I want to talk about with my job is as a consulting company, I have a lot of flexibility uh, with what I do and uh, we have the ability to pick up contracts all the time. My job is just like space system engineer is a very broad title and I take full advantage of that in my tasking.
13: Um, Well, excellent. Well, well, I have to uh, admit that in order to introduce you, I had to look up what orbital resonance was, and uh, so I was pretty impressed and on what you've done your uh, research on, Laura. So, uh, so welcome. Um, looks like we don't have Dr. Roberge at the moment, so hopefully she'll be able to join us. Um, hopefully everything's okay, but because um, I know she's excited about being here, but but life happens, so maybe something something's going on. Hopefully everything's all right. So we'll go ahead and press with uh, with the panel. Um, I wanted to. I haven't seen any questions yet from the audience, and if I miss something, let me know. But um, you know, I, I would like to maybe kind of go through the panel one more time with another broad question. Um, you know, we've talked today on other panels about um, you know challenges and overcoming challenges. I heard a lot of great advice from many people about you know moving on and. You know, not getting stuck in that kind of thing, but it, so I wanted maybe along that theme. You know, what challenges have you encountered? And I think we'll start with Laura. But what what challenges have you encountered and overcome in your career, early in your career? And then what advice would you have for young people that are really trying to start their journey? Um, because obviously, everybody's going to be looking at challenges in their career. But you know, what would you what would you tell a young person?
15: So. The biggest challenge that comes to mind so far in my career was my first assignment after graduate school in the Air Force. Um, I was put in a position that you would, based on the type of tasks that were coming in, you would call it an administrative assistant type role, which didn't seem right considering the Air Force just had just invested in my undergraduate and graduate degrees in astronautical engineering. Um, I'm not sure whether it was my age that placed me in that role or um, what about it. But I just kept doing my best to, first of all, get done what needed to get done in that role. And second of all, apply what I have learned from a technical standpoint to try to take it a step further and maybe even get some of the engineering tasks done. Um, so like to prove myself like, hey, I'm not an administrative assistant Um, That's not what I went to school for. (laughs) Um, My efforts were noticed, fortunately, and I got picked up to um, work on a higher priority program and be an engineer on that program. So Mm -hmm. my advice for that challenge is just don't let others limit you.
13: That's great advice, Laura. And uh, I think you're not alone in in that, Uh, particularly, I think, young people that come into the Air Force, they, they do find themselves in that position. So it's great advice. Um, uh, Kathleen, I'd like to go to you. Can you uh, address a challenge in your early career and how you, and, and what kind of advice you would have for young people?
14: Yeah, it's, it's not early career because I had so many, but when I moved into <laughs> education and then specifically into aerospace, when I was selected to fly on Sophia, I was teaching seventh grade uh, math and science And everyone else on the first six that were selected and we helped develop that education program, they were physics, um, astronomy, they'd been on other missions. I was new, really new. And I had to keep just hold on to my own sense of lack, that I didn't have the knowledge, that I didn't have what they had, which it seemed like a whole bunch more acumen than I did. So... All along the way, um, and at one point the mission manager said, I don't want to hear one more time that you're only a seventh grade uh, educator because it turned out that I became a high level spokesperson accidentally, but not really because that's my gift is, is a communicator. I can take really difficult concepts, pull it out of an engineer, mathematician or scientist, and then bring them down to a place where the everyone else can understand because I don't have that knowledge. So that was a really good piece of information for me so that now when I'm working with people who that are highly educated or famous or have done big, I'm like, that's okay because I'm here and I'm going to learn. And then what's my goal is how can I uh, make a connection or how can I connect this to young people or bring it to someone else? So I I think being okay with who you are and then really defining what your skills are and bringing that with a lot of confidence and then continuing to do the work to keep on doing that better. Because the jostling that happens on social media, and then I'll stop, the jostling that happens to like be good enough, uh, well enough, it's just constant right now. So I cut up social media last October actually because of this very, th- one of those very things. So that's my biggest challenge I've overcome. Um, helped me I to become like, a
13: pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a great, that's such a great um, story and, and it's something important. I think for everybody is a little bit of a theme between you and Laura that, you know, kind of trying to find your value when you come into the business, it's not immediate um, all the time. And so persevering through that figuring out what your value is and being comfortable with that. That's a great, great message. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, Okay, let's see, Uh, Janelle, can you you talk a little bit about, have you had any challenges? I bet you might have a couple.
10: Oh yes, (laughs) definitely not without challenges over here. You know, when I was thinking about the question, what kind of came to my mind first was this concept of finding your place and in all senses of what that means. And so, you know, it started very early for me. I get accepted into this school called MIT that I only learned about through a pamphlet in the mail that my mom happened to bring my attention to. And I find myself there and I realize, you know, I don't know nearly as much as my classmates. My classmates came in knowing exactly what they wanted to major in. They knew who the professors were. They had a plan for themselves. And I was like, well, just happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I started to feel the magic after getting into this aerospace engineering stuff, I started to wonder, you know, how do I end up Finding the dream job. How do I accomplish those things? Where do you even start? Especially when you're surrounded by all of the greatness and when you compare it to yourself, you're like, oh man, I got an uphill battle. But you know, what I really found to be like the number one driver for me and what I think is the reason why my time at MIT still was successful despite those feelings of imposter syndrome and not thinking that you have necessarily the tools or the right to call yourself an engineer is this concept called the delta, a math term. I've always loved math. I'm a math geek. But I think of it like all of us have something called the personal delta. It is the difference between the us that started and the us of now. And when I think and I thought about that personal delta, I wasn't nearly as hard on myself anymore. Compare the Janelle who walked in, knew nothing to the Janelle of today, even after I didn't get the internship at JPL. Not just the first time, but I didn't get it the second time. And then the third time, it wasn't even an option, you know? But when I kept leaning on that delta and focusing on how can the personal growth happen, that is when things really clicked for me. And and I attribute that to the reason why I still ended up at JPL despite all of those shortcomings. And then when I got there, I had to find my place all over again. And it's not just in the technical realm. You have to find your place as a person too. I moved from the East Coast to California, a place I had been maybe three times in my entire life. No family here. You know, I walk into work, Thankfully, my team was incredible. You'll hear about them. The Cassidy mission, oh my goodness. So grateful to have been a part of that mission as my first project there. But I felt this longing of community. And when I poked out and explored, I found that JPL had employee resource groups, but the one for Black employees had really been dormant. They were doing basically one event a year. And so I met with them and said, would you mind if me and my friends kind of put some life back into this again? And they were all on board for that. And now, you know, five years later, I'm the president of the Black Employee Resource Group at JPL, and we have gone above and beyond doing our one MLK Day event. Not only have we gathered the community, but we have made institutional change at the lab as a driving force. I'm so happy that, you know, if you persevere and just think about the growth, you really can eventually find your place.
13: That's a such a great message, Janelle. Thank you so much. I mean, then congratulations on, you know, taking that dormant, um, you know, group and making something out of it, you know, because how many more people now are going to not have to go through what you did and they're gonna find their place when they walk in as opposed to trying to figure it all out, so. That was well, the goal. <laughs> yeah, fantastic, well, thank you. Um, so Marilyn, can you can you talk a little bit about your experiences?
11: Uh, yes, thank you, Janelle. Um, you know, I'm gonna sort of echo a little bit about what Janelle said about, you know, um, Really, you know, being perseverance, perseverance and creative problem solving and not necessarily accepting the word no, every time you hear it. Um, I've had, you know, most of my career particularly related to aviation aerospace has been a lot of no's dealing with the FAA. you know, when I wanted to uh, do an over the water air show. Um, and, and, and not only over the water air show, which is a, a, a very high degree of difficulty, but also doing it in class, Bravo Charlie and Delta Airspace. This is when I decided to create my own air show in Huntington Beach. And of course you have Long Beach, Los Angeles and Orange County there. And everybody kept telling me it was impossible. And I'm like, whoa, whoa is it impossible or just difficult? I can do difficult. Um, so, I'm not quite sure where you draw the line between impossible and difficult, you know, I'm <laughs> that out, but I went through a lot of um, a lot of no's in getting that done. A lot of no's. Um, and I'm gonna share one quick story related to that, which I think was a really big uh it was a, a huge aha moment for me. So I was well into the planning of this air show, probably six, seven months into the planning, about 45 days away. Um, it was going to be a three-day air show, full-blown, uh, you know, the Royal Canadian Air Force, they had Bob Hoover flying a bunch of civilian uh, air show performers, fairly well known at that time. It also had a lot of activities, there were uh, going to be musical concerts, there was a car show, there was an art show, there was a huge, gigantic trade expo, you know, for more than about four or five hundred businesses. It was a huge, gigantic event. So I'm saying this because throughout this process, I had gone to the city council and they had given their approval. So again, I'm about 45 days out and all of a sudden I received notification from the city of the Huntington Beach that the event process had been, the event permit had been revoked. And I'm like, why? And they said, well, the fire marshal uh, doesn't think that this is a good thing for the city, that it's kind of a risky move. I didn't even know a fire marshal existed in the city of Huntington Beach at that time. <laughs> for the man didn't know the position existed. So upon some investigation, I quickly found out that he was sort of like the person that no one's ever gonna say no to or stand up to because he protects the city. And he was worried about the safety and well-being of the residents. And even though I had worked with all the city safety services, he still didn't feel. So I kept saying, well, how can I get a meeting with this person? Like I've never met him. We, we don't even know each other. And everybody said, that's not gonna happen. But I kept saying, no, no, it is gonna happen. And I finally found an individual who was well-connected and she set up a meeting with me and the fire marshal and I had two weeks to prepare. And I sat down and I thought about what that conversation was gonna look like. And I realized that you know, his revoking that permit without ever knowing anything about this was coming from a place of fear. He was concerned about the safety and well being of his residents. And so I had to overcome that fear. So, what I did is I sat down and I thought, well, how can I do this? And I realized that there were quite a few very large other air shows that were put on by cities, actually owned by the cities, including Chicago Sea and Air Show, which was over the water, Toronto Sea and Air Show, which was over the water. Um, St. Louis, Minnesota, yeah, St. Louis, Minnesota. And that was an over-the-water air show. And then, of course, the Seattle Seafair. I reached out to every single one of those cities and said, I need your help. I am trying to do X, Y, and Z. And the city is saying no. And so they sent me all, all of them sent me their disaster preparedness plans. And again, these are they owned their air show. The city funded air show because they deemed it a good community service, whatever it might be. So they believed in it. Uh, Not only did they give me their disaster preparedness plans, but they offered to be on call during the time when I had the meeting with the fire marshal. Suffice it to say, 30 minutes after the meeting with the fire marshal, my air vent was back on. And um, (laughs) so- What a story. Yeah, what a story. I have one other quick one just kind of, had a, you know, that it brought to mind kind of, you know, I'd already been through those challenges. So years later, when I transitioned to the X Prize, and one of the missions in my job description, I don't know if it was a brand new position, so I'm not sure it was a job description, but I was overseeing uh, the first air and space uh, expo at Holloman Air Force Base, where we were going to have live rocket fire and air show performers and also lunar lander vehicle competition that Northrop Grumman was sponsoring for 2.5 million. So my job was to, one of the jobs was to get the AST, which is the space side of the FAA, to buy off on the fact that I wanted to fly experimental vehicles, lunar landers, filled with liquid oxygen in front of a crowd. And they looked at me and went, yeah, no, 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 it's not gonna happen, not, not, not today, not ever. Um, well, to say it did happen. It took many months again of overcoming the what is the fear? what Where's the mark that we can move closer so that we're both in our comfort zones? Um, but anyway, so those are some of the areas that, you know, I was based with a lot of no's and you just had to figure out, well, what does no really mean? And where is it? What, usually it's fear based or not understanding something. And the more you can educate them or come to a common ground as to what is it that you're not feeling comfortable with and being able to overcome those obstacles, somewhere along the line, you're going to find that middle road.
13: That's, those are great stories. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Marilyn. Um, okay, Niyati, can, uh, can you give us a little bit of a, an idea of what, what your world is like in terms of challenges?
7: I'll be honored too. So I think one of the biggest challenges I had was after I graduated with my master's and I've already shared, like you know, like you get the job, you know, what is the position? You started, but you don't know what you have to do there. So you kind of have an idea, but you don't know where to start, what should you be doing and how to ask for help or whether or not to even ask for help. Are you supposed to do that? Um, specifically, because all the people were um, males, and uh, it's really hard for me to go and ask them. So I would, I think I did. I learned from that that I, I used to pick up way more in order to I had to prove myself that I do belong there. I would take way too much on my plate and get overwhelmed and work late hours. And um, I do not know if it's needed or any. Any other male people I know in the industry would do that, but um, I would pick up way too much work and I would agree to everything. And I would say yes and I would pick up everything. And that, as a result, I'm working late in the night, late alone in the office, trying to figure out why. I have no idea. I have a to or ask for it or negotiate, or even if it's in the terms, because you're new in the industry, you do not know whether you can do that or not. So I think that was a very big challenge for me to understand that I can say no to things and I am, I should go and ask for help that would not be taken um, otherwise, because I think we, since as women, we always have to prove ourselves, which is very right. We constantly have to keep proving, I would say, in the work industry that we belong there, we deserve to be there. And I think that is a feeling we need to get rid of, because no matter what, how much you work, you work three times, four times, it still comes back to the same thing that the next day with the new project, you're still working really hard to show everybody. So I think being happy with where you are at, as everybody's told, is a really important thing um, to realize and to ask for help. And mentors, I think, um, when needed, is really, really big. And saying learning to say no, because as I think females, we have learned to say yes, as generational like one is I wouldn't say as it's not anything with ego but you know the need to be um happy the need to please everybody the need to be you know popular with everyone and you know to prove yourself constantly because that's what you had to do every time because there were so many classes I would take and I'd be the only woman and I think you all can relate to that so you constantly have to prove your place in the industry and I think at one point I realized that I have to start proving people because I belong there. The reason I am there is because I already belong there. I do not have to further take on 10 times more work than somebody else to prove it, that I can do it. And um, I think it's that was a very big challenge for me because it took me a long time to, it's an inner battle. I think the old face, nobody talks about it. I, I was not able to discuss it with another female because there are right now other females and uh, that's when I realized maybe I should start again get back in AIAA, and maybe that will help me connect with other women or other people even men who have seen this in the industry and I think that helped me a lot to open up and figure out that I do not know and I wouldn't say I know unless I don't know about it but I think because I was willing to put in way more effort to learn it I would get way more work which isn't which wasn't a problem but I think with the constant battle. We need to understand that if we're there at the job, we got the job, we, we deserve it. That's it. We do our work and that goes on from there. We do not have to feel all the time that we don't belong here. I don't know why I'm here because I think I had that just for this um, um, panel discussion too. I was feeling that way because I was like, I do not know. There are so many people who are so experienced. You all have done such great things and I do not know if I really did belong here. But, you know, as everybody said, we just have to be more confident in ourselves and believe more in ourselves than anybody else.
13: That's a great message. what so I'm saying. That's the big, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a great message. I love that you can say no. I love the message of, you know, you belong. And, you, you know, so that, and I heard it earlier in the, Program. Somebody said, you know, supporting each other. I think it might have been Claire, probably Mary and a couple others. But you know, supporting each other um, so that you do feel more like you don't have to tell. You're not the only person telling yourself, "Hey, I belong." When you have other folks that can can help you, you know, feel that way.
14: Janet, can I say yeah, something? Yeah, like, like, like about yeah, yeah, Oh, sorry, you go ahead. Go for go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, I, I think it also has to do probably being a woman, but also um, folks who have a high bar of excellence or, or are turned on by achievement, you know, turned on work. Like, I love personal development and I love growing and developing and I love trying new things. And, and I, uh, a, about a year and a half ago, no, it's almost two years now. I crashed because I was running a project that was uh, a high level aerospace project connected to, to kids in Israel. And we were doing it was connected to NASA Ames. I was running the glider project the you know, all these different, and I was opening up a school in Colorado that's right on an airstrip. It's next to it's on Centennial airstrip and it's an aerospace um, school that's connected to Wings of the Rocky, Centennial Airport, and a specifically aerospace middle school. And I landed on my butt because I kept saying, oh, I'm good. I'm working out. I'm eating well. But I really, really did burn out. And my point to that is um, there's a, a certain amount of energy and time we have to to invest in things. And so I'm so much more careful now. And I'm in a weekly. Uh, mastermind meeting with some really amazing women. And I meet with them faithfully for, you know, accountability, support, goal setting. And that's just been um, really helpful for me because I can lie to myself. I can say, oh, I can do that next opportunity because, ooh, I don't want it to go away. And I can justify as a, a high achiever. And so I really like really glad I did that you're hearing that about yourself and that you're owning that because you have a lot to do and a lot that's before you and learning that lesson now and not learn ending up on your a is really the right way to go so
7: I love thank that. you Kathleen. I would just like to say uh, something else too. like so when I was doing my master's I was part as you mentioned was part of a rocket team so even there like they were just well I would see were, were all the males so as Kathleen said taking on way more projects did, lead, uh, did uh, lead to me crashing at one time. And I was like, I don't think I can do anything anymore. So when I became, uh, when I came back to school after working, I was like, I'm going to go do a full-time PhD. I think I realized what I didn't have was other people who were in the same scenario, but weren't ready to talk about it. So that's when I decided that, no, I do want to revise the Viminiferousness and I do want to be a part of it because I think I didn't get it. And I think a lot of other students might be in the same position. And it turned out, yes, they are, because they're they're scared, they're working hard. And a lot of them were ready to drop out because they were like, I'm going to just change my major because I don't want to be this way. And I think, as she said, learning it ahead in time is really helpful, yeah.
13: Thanks. Thanks, everybody. And, uh, you know, one thing, Kathleen, that you brought up, I think, is, is really important. Um, I'm part of several different groups, uh, Women in Defense, and I've got other, other groups of friends that are, you know, basically professionally based, but um, that really does help with the accountability, because you're right, we all can lie to ourselves about how much we can take on and and every once in a while I'll realize oh I keep missing this I keep missing this meeting I keep missing this time with my professional friends and it's like okay that's my own trigger to go hey you know your priorities are out of whack so those kinds of things you know if you can join them like you know Janelle your your um, black excellence group and you know there's all those different kinds of things that you can join but it does help it does help you keep balanced and focused and realize, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot out there, but, um, you know, but you don't have, you can't do it all. And, you know, you probably shouldn't do it all. So, um, okay, so I'm gonna go on to the next question. Um, so I would like to know from each one of you, what your most memorable experience at work was um, and what, what did you learn from it? So Nyadi, I'm gonna start with you.
7: Okay, uh, I would say the most memorable was actually, I wouldn't say it was from my work. It was the rocket uh, launch experience I had. I, so I it, it was my first experience. We had a solid propellant rocket. It was taller than me, so I was like, hmm, I don't know if I uh, will go as it goes. So kind of we drove to uh, Green River Utah and I think it was Ezra, I was a part of, and everybody came over internationally. And I was like, how big can this can this be? Because I had no idea. And I go there and I realize it's massive and there's so many people there. And I and I was thinking to myself, if I'm able to just stand there it will be a great deal for me. So we launch a rocket. So everybody's launching solid propellant rocket. I'm like, I'm so amazed. And then comes a propellant rocket. And that is a whole another ball game. So when the first or the second time I saw them launch, and I was like, this has changed my life because I'm standing right there and I'm listening to the propellant burn and, and liftoff because I have ha- never had the experience to see a rocket, rocket launch in person before. So... I think that was the most amazing moment, which reaffirmed my faith in what I was doing. And I was like, this is what I want to hear. And this is what I want to do. I want to hear this is every day. And I'm hoping I get to hear it whenever I get a full time job. And I think after I, I do my PhD, but I, I think I do every time I go back to that memory and I, it just makes me come back to it. This is why I'm in it because that's the rush which I get, and I really want to keep doing that. And I think that's the most memorable experience to be standing just so far away. And uh, it was a very different experience because a, a lot of rocket launch could turn into something really very unsafe, which it was a couple of times because it was in the desert in Green River, and everybody was just started running and start walking, and they're like running for their life. But it was. It was scary, but it was a really good uh, memory I had, and I think that will last with me forever. So that was really um, a great one. Yes, thank you. Oh yeah,
13: I think I can. I think we can all who've seen a rocket launch can relate to that. So thank you for sharing that, Nyati. Um Laura, would you share with us your most memorable experience at work and what you learned?
15: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's funny because if you had told me at the beginning of this experience that it would be my most memorable, I would have been very skeptical of you. So I had the opportunity to design, build, test, and deploy a space ground system, which normally I prefer the space segment versus the ground segment, but you know, like any opportunity that comes in, we give our best. Um, So I gave my best and I got to be part of a small team of very intelligent, very professional engineers. Um, And because it was a small team, we were each so critical to the mission. Like we just had to do our job and we had to do it right. And we had to do it right on time. And the really cool part about this experience was I got to see it from beginning to end. Like I got to do all the paperwork and the engineering design work up front and then fly to the location and actually turn wrenches and get this system up and running. Um, So just so cool. Um, And I'll never forget that experience. The thing I learned from it is that small teams can do great things.
13: Absolutely. And and you forgot the part about in ground rocks, right? You got to have a consistent. <laughs> that's right. I had have, I have to throw that in there. I'm a, I'm a ground person. So I always have to, you know, you got to stand up and represent. But now that's cool. And I do actually think on the ground is one of those places where you really can turn the wrench, so to speak, you know. And so that, that's cool that you had that experience. Um, before we go, though, I'm going to ask you about orbital resonances. So we're, we'll, we'll come back to that. We're not going okay. to hear more about that. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, Kathleen, can you talk about your most memorable experience?
14: This is a hard one. You know, with work, I get these bucket filled moments where parents or kids or teachers look at me and say, this has changed my life. And, you know, and you get to hear that and you think that's why I do this. You know, I think of the moment when we looked at the oxidation, we, I took some kids to JPL. no. To NASA Glenn to do post-flight analysis on our first experiment then what up and then watching the rust come on the electron microscope and it looked like something alive and the boys that were there that were high school boys were like almost weeping those kind of moments when I watched a kid solo for the first time in a glider and there was a high school student or get their license in the high school and know that that genesis of that seed was you know those are like those moments but here's mine Selfish mind. Here's me. That's me shaking hands with an examiner when, you know, I'm up in the the glider. I never wanted to be a pilot, never ever in a million years Um, because, A, I didn't want to and I wasn't interested, but We were doing this project and I said to my husband, who was a glider pilot, he said, hey, your kids need to know about how to speed up, how to turn. And um, I'm great. Go make that video for me, husband, because he's also an educator. And he goes, no, you're the teacher. You have to. And I said, no, I don't want to get in that glider. And so I got in the glider and made those videos. And then after a couple of moments, I I started flying. Uh, No, a couple of flights, I started trying to fly. So learning to fly a glider was the hardest thing I've ever done next to raising four kids. (laughs) And I, I was, you know, I did it because I loved it, but also I knew that if I could do it and if I could overcome my fear, then I could also share this with any of the folks that I was working with. So it was a personal, beautiful moment of education about my capacity to do anything. And I truly, when I, you know, when he, when that glider landed uh, and I didn't know it was coming and he said, congratulations, you're a private pilot. Like I, I, I started weeping because it was such a moment of like, how in the world did that, you know, okay. So that spoke to me about. If you want to do anything, and I know it's so cliche, you really could do anything you want to. So that's my educational moment, and that I share um, often with kids as, and with young young people in general. So that's, it.
13: that's awesome. That's so awesome. I mean, yeah i i, I can I can't relate to that because I, I can't imagine not wanting to be. A pilot and then all of a sudden you're just like boom you're it you know but what a great story for your for your um classroom too you know to just inspire kids to do what they can do so thank you for that Kathleen um all right Janelle can you talk about your most memorable experience you must have had a couple with <laughs> you're working
10: Sure. And I love hearing all of you talk about your memorable experiences because you can just feel it. right? I, I could feel your excitement. I could feel that moment. Oh, it's just so special. It brings the goosebumps back when you think back on stuff like that. Uh, okay. So I guess to talk about my most memorable moment. Uh, It happened when I first started at JPL and I was told that I was going to be working on the Cassini mission to Saturn. I knew nothing about this mission prior, but of course I'm not going to say that. I mean, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, I know Cassini. (laughs) Let me do research when I go home. But when I started to really learn and understand what this project was all about, I started to realize how special and how grateful I should be of this opportunity that was given to me. I was the last hire to the Cassini mission because it was at the end of its life by the time I got brought on. And I stopped being as hard on myself about not knowing as much about it in advance when I learned that it launched in 1997, when I was three years old. But somehow, some way, all these years later, I'm still able to be a part of this magical thing. But here's what truly made Cassini special. In its years in space, after its seven-year journey from Earth to Saturn, being there, extending its mission over and over again because of the extremely smart and creative navigation team, it had come to show us. And when I say us, I mean all of humanity, because one of the best parts at working at JPL is that we share the wealth. Don't just keep it on the inside. We share it with the public. Join us in the discovery. And it had taken these magnificent photos of Saturn and its rings and the moons. I have one of the pictures signed by the whole team hanging on my wall. I wish I could show you right now. But it was so exciting to be told that my job was operating the cameras, taking these pictures, unreal. These things that look like an artist drew them, but we were actually there. Humanity was there taking this data. And when I heard from the team that we were about to do this thing called the grand finale, I was like, what is this? We're going to be diving in between the gap between Saturn and its rings for the first time ever, and then ending on one last orbit where we point it back to Earth, sending our last signal and disintegrating in its atmosphere. We were planning the end on purpose. I mean, how cool is that? As a new hire, I'm like, what? <laughs> we're ending it on purpose and I get to be there for it. I mean, it's like, It's so awesome. I was looking forward to it. What a cool experience. But as we got closer to the date, I started to get this sense that the rest of the team wasn't necessarily as excited as I was. I mean, I'm I'm listening to them. They're talking about, oh, they're going to have to bring out the therapy dogs and the ice cream chugs. Like, why do we need that? Are are we just having a party? But then on September 15th at four in the morning, it's out there at Caltech dark I'm surrounded by members of people who have worked on Cassini through the years 30 years or so of its being in existence being thought of being designed and we're watching together these big screens for teammates in the mission control center at JPL and we're all waiting for this signal to disappear indicating the end of the mission and I remember still feeling excited for that moment and then when it dropped and they zoomed in on the team standing up hugging each other and then I saw my boss start to weep cry like I've never seen him cry in my life all of a sudden I was crying like really hard I think I scared my friends I had no idea where this emotion had come from but it finally clicked that on Monday there was nothing to operate Mm. This thing that had brought all these people together, all of these great people together, it had finally come to an end. And what a bittersweet end that was, but also how wonderful it was to have been included and be a part of it. And I will always look back on that experience as my fondest time here at JPL and just eternally grateful to be taken in as considered
13: one of the team. Wow. that. Is, I mean, I'm about ready to cry. (laughs) You told that story. That's amazing. And I don't even want to tell you what I was doing in 1997. But um, (laughs) I I remember when Cassini launched. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) So thank you, Janelle.
7: I I remember watching it. I remember watching it on Netflix. I think they had a story for that, the grand finale, as she mentioned. Cassini, And I watched it. So many times, I uh, can't believe that I'm actually getting to hear it from you. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of
10: course, the the show she's talking about is called Seven Days Out, it's a docu series that talked about those days leading up. And if you have a sharp eye, maybe you had to catch me in the background. Of course,
7: <laughs> well, I'm gonna rewatch
10: it. <laughs> we watched that whole documentary together at the same time. They passed off the tissue boxes, and we we laughed like what a joke but we needed them.
13: (laughs) That's awesome thank you for sharing that Janelle and um, Marilyn would you uh, can you share with us your most memorable experience? I'm pretty sure none of us could hold
11: a candle to Janelle's. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's pretty amazing Um, that yeah wow okay yeah all of us got a little emotional there Um, you know I have a moment where that literally, uh, I think this moment changed the trajectory of my career, uh, my professional career, uh, to one that I never even anticipated or could have imagined. You know, I was a director of marketing for the, the uh, Naval Air Station in Hawaii, which is originally where I'm from. And the reason I'm saying that is just to explain a lot. There isn't any aviation in, in Hawaii, okay, other than the, the those big giant birds that go back and forth across to the mainland that I was scared to death to get on. But anyway, so I worked at the Naval air station as director of marketing, and uh, knew nothing about aviation, nor did I want to know anything about aviation. I, again, hated to fly. Um, and the commanding officer and the executive officer of the base asked to meet me with me one day, and um, they pretty much, you know, said that that we're going to do an air show, a full blown air show with the Navy Blue Angels, and they need my help because they couldn't spend military dollars; they had to spend non-military dollars which was sort of in my shop and i went okay you know i'm always ready to be amiable and willing to to help and they i said i have two questions though what's an air show and who are the blue angels um and so they tried to explain to me what an air show was and for the life of me i couldn't imagine why would anybody want to watch airplanes all day long i mean i literally could not imagine this so um they sent me to the mainland here uh, over here in the mainland where uh, to several military installations who put on large uh, air shows and I learned from them. And uh, throughout the, the year of the first year of, of producing this air show in the middle of the Pacific, might I mind you, you know, meant that I didn't realize that airplanes eventually ran out of fuel because the ones that I have been on didn't run out of fuel. They go from Hawaii to the mainland, quite lovely, without having to speed fuel or anything. Uh, but that was a huge aha moment and realized the degree of difficulty that I had just jumped on and that they forgot to share with me some of those details like the Blue Angels have to be, you know, have in-air refueling to get to California, but they need a tanker to do that. And the Navy doesn't have any tankers and the Blue Angels are Navy. And so the only people that have tankers are the Air Force. Great, how do I get an Air Force anyway? But through that whole process, by the end of the year and by the end of the first air show, the three days of air shows, and I realized on the morning after that life had no meaning anymore, that that I just lived through 24-7, almost a year of adrenaline rush, and now it didn't. And I realized that the the aviation bug had bit me, and it bit hard. um, I pursued after that a career in aviation, which eventually ended up in rockets and all that kind of stuff. But literally, I went from being in marketing, advertising, which was my passion, that was the only thing I ever wanted to do, to learning about airplanes and rockets, which I knew nothing about. So that was kind of my big aha moment.
13: That is so cool. That is so cool. And we're lucky to have you because, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I would never want to tell you no. I don't I don't think it it would ever work so you know I don't think there's anything you can't do Marilyn so so thank thank you you. thank you for sharing that well I know we are not quite out of time but we are probably needing to wrap it up so I think what I'm going to do is go around the panel and I'd like to ask you guys to just sort of you know give some final remarks um there's few things I'm hoping to hear about, um, and Marilyn, I'm going to start with you, but, um, you know, a few things. I definitely would like to hear, you know, a little bit more about um, uh, about the, the, the orbital resonance that, that Laura's been doing work on, a little bit more about, um, you know, the PhD that, um, that um, um, I'm sorry, that Niati is working on. And so anything that you guys can kind of tell us about you know, where, you're, where you're going and what, what you're doing and what the next step is, I think would be great for everybody to hear. So Marilyn, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with you.
11: Um, wow, I don't know that I have anything to add other than this has been an incredible conversation. I have learned so much from everybody and just to hear everybody's experiences, similar but yet so different, so unique. Um, But I think the one common thread that we all have is that we're women. And um, Janet, I know you spent some time in the military and Laura, you spent some time in the military. I did as a civilian. I worked with both the Navy and the Air Force. Um, Definitely a man's world, because it was a long time ago, very few women in that area, as I'm sure Janet, you know. Uh, And for me, I learned a lot from those experiences, but also some of my greatest supporters were the men that I worked for. Uh, to me, when I didn't know I had, I was, I yeah, they believed that I was, I was able to do the things that I never even considered were possible. So um, I think as we walk through our professional career, you know, we really hit, realize there's going to be all kinds of supporters out there who are going to be on our side and r- rally for us, and we never quite know what they might look like. You know, so never just count an individual supporting you, and also don't ever, you know, don't ever think. That when you're presented with a challenge, don't ever think you can't do it. Because chances are you probably can.
13: I love that. Thank you, Marilyn. I love that. Um, I think Niati, are are you back up? I know we think we lost her because she's having bandwidth issues. Okay, we'll come back to her if, if we can. Um, Laura, can you um, give us a few closing remarks and thoughts on the future?
15: Um sure. So I actually wanted to build upon some of the thoughts that Kathleen and Nyadi had brought up earlier about balancing your energy, especially as high achievers. And the fact that we're all women here, meaning that we're going to be likely considering family in the near future or already have four children, Kathleen. and these are very important parts of our lives. And I think it sometimes it can be taboo to bring up these aspects in professional settings, but I think we do need to consider them um, balanced with the professional. And the fact that we are all here on a Saturday <laughs> means that, you know, we maybe dip into our family time more than um, other people might. But like, um, I think that I, what I wanted to say was is, You can be a highly successful professional and still have a very loving family at the end of the day. It takes so much work. You're on 24-7, but I think it's all worth it in the end.
13: I agree that it's a great message, but but you dodged my question about orbital resonance, so tell us a little bit about that. (laughs)
15: <laughs> okay, so this is deeply technical <laughs> and not a very like ending inspiring note but so orbital resonances if you're familiar with the pendulum, pro- uh, pendulum problem at certain frequencies a pendulum will experience chaotic motion. Uh, orbits have a similar experience when they are repeating ground traces so they will experience the same perturbations at each time, each day. And we actually use these orbits a lot because they are seeing the same part of the earth at the same time each day. Um, we, can, we know when we're gonna view them each day. It's good for mission planning, all these things. Even GPS uses repeating ground space traces. Uh, the problem is there is chaotic dynamics with these and they are difficult to model mathematically because you get a divide by zero problem. <laughs> But it can be overcome. Uh, in my thesis, I overcame this issue doing a coordinate transformation, so applying transformation theory, um, and then redirecting the equations of motion to actually model these orbital resonances. Um, wow. That's what you were looking for. <laughs> yes, that's what
13: I wanted to hear about. Uh, so the most precise signal you know, is GPS. And Laura has figured out how to make it even more precise through her orbital resonance research. It's just, I mean, amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Really glad to have you on and uh, appreciate you being here, Laura.
15: Thank you, it's been an honor.
13: All right, well, let's see. Um, Kathleen, can you uh, give us a few closing remarks on, and uh, you know, anything else you wanna share before we go?
14: Um, beautiful opportunity, thank you so much. Feel very honored to be part. Um, just also really wanna, say yes about what you just said Laura family is the most important and um and 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 don't give it to the don't give the scraps of of like we show up as our best self and our most energetic and beautiful leaders and then we come home and we give the 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 leftovers to others so especially partners um, and yes to having kids, the best thing ever. Um, my 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 ask or my put out there is, you know, we have some really great projects that we're doing right now. I'm working with Al Bowers from NASA Armstrong to create a bio inspiration project. It's already being done, but we're doing that. We have our Aero project that's connected to gliders. We're moving towards a couple of their airports to bring power in. We have a, an Aero pathway that we're developing. Um, Two different space projects. So, my bottom line is if anyone wants to be involved in any of those or you're looking for a way to give back, and I know that you guys a lot look at like kids, people that are in grad school, or but my really goal is to get to those middle school or those babies and start widening their horizon because often they don't have any horizon at all. And they say, Yeah, I like gaming. Because that's what they know. And they and if you said, Would you like to fly? or to, like, I don't know. I know, never. So if you need a place or want a place to share with some kids your gifts, let me know.
13: <laughs> well, Kathleen, you're so inspiring for all of us. I mean, thank you for everything you do. It's the next generation is so important. And um, so thank you for everything you do. Um, and
11: having this having set uh, as a judge, one of Kathleen's. Um, student competitions. I can tell you, our future is safe. Um, is good hands. These students are amazing. I wasn't doing that kind of work when I was their age. By a long stretch. I mean seriously, they're amazing. So good job, Kathleen. Whatever you do, it
13: keep doing it. Fantastic. Thanks for thanks for that. Um, all right, Janelle, you get the last word. Let's uh, and then uh, and then we'll wrap it up. I'll turn it back over to Marilee after you uh, after you, Janelle.
10: Okay, so I guess starting with looking to the future, uh, Cassini's over, it ended in 2017. And since then I've had the opportunity to work on such a diverse set of missions. One at the moon called a Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter measuring the surface temperature of the moon to help us determine where those cold spots really are to help plan for future missions to the moon through Artemis and programs of that nature. So operating that. And uh, I'm also on three Earth-based missions because guess what? Earth's a planet too. And it's important because it's our home Team Earthlings, Uh, two of them are both monitoring the surface of our oceans and the topography that's SWAT and Sentinel-6. Sentinel-6 is actually in flight right now, and I've commanded it quite a few times, launching last November, and SWAT is slated to launch sometime next year. And the last one, which I have been spending basically most of my JPL career working on, is the multi angle imager for aerosols or Maya? I'm actually wearing this shirt today. And this mission is so special to me because it has a goal of measuring particulate matter or pollution in cities, different cities all around the world, so that we can do a health study with epidemiologists to determine what types of pollutions are causing health issues in people. I mean, What an important topic with environmental causes of death being in the top 10 worldwide. I'm so excited to be a part of a mission where that is the goal at the end of the day, to do this study to helpfully inform better policy going forward. So that's what I'm up to and what's on the horizon for me. And if I'm going to leave with anything, it's that You know, it's not possible to make it this far. You know, being this student from New Jersey with two parents who knew nothing about STEM, neither of them graduating from a four-year university, stumbling upon MIT, stumbling upon aerospace engineering, making it to NASA, which if I would have said I wanted to work for NASA when I was a kid, people would have laughed. You might as well have said, I want to be a princess. You know, no one takes it seriously. So the fact that I've been able to make it this far it makes no sense to not reach back and bring others with me like that to me is the goal at the end of the day we have to continue to create space for good in whatever way we can in whatever career path we have in our lives how can we bring something positive to the world and make it so that there is a better future so with that in mind if my call to action is anything it's, it's for us to have that at the back of our hearts so that we live our lives in a meaningful way
13: beautiful Janelle thank you very much yeah what a great message um, I I just want to say it's been a true honor and pleasure to be here with all of you and um, I wish we could do this for like another two or three more hours because I have a feeling we just scratched the surface with all of you but um, but anyway thank you very much for your time this afternoon and, and Marilee I'll turn it over to you
0: great thanks Janet uh, yeah my thanks as well to this second panel I mean you could feel the energy coming right through the Zoom and through the voices and everything. So, uh, thanks to Janet and the and the panel for for that. A great great ending to a great program day. And I think uh, Janelle's message too about you know paying it forward. I mean, everyone who participated today, all our participants, all our panel. Um, thanks to our keynote speaker uh, Leslie. Really, were paying it forward by by taking their time, their talent, their resources, and spending it with us on this Saturday. And I know we've all have learned something about women's history in aviation, uh, motivational comments from all of the panelists, and just such an uh, esteemed group of, of, of women. And I really do need to give thanks to the uh, AIAA, LV section, and to the events and program chair, um, Ken Louie, because Uh, When he uh, approached me first back in May to say, hey, shall we do another event to uh, commemorate um, the uh, equality in the 19th Amendment? I said, sure, let's do it. But truly, he was the one who did all the legwork in terms of uh, through his uh, Rolodex, an old term, but through through his network, uh, finding all the speakers and just such a wealth of talent out there. So I want to thank him for all of his efforts, and I want to thank the uh, AIAA, LA, LV section for doing this commemoration program again, again this year. And um, so with that, I wish everybody a really great rest of today and the weekend, and uh, look forward to networking with many of you in, in the future. So um, that's it for today. Thank you all again. Bye.